welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, and we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for the original Life of Walter Mitty. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my Peruvian counterpart, Julio. It's Julio. almost like you forgot who I was for a second. <laughs> well, I was trying to think of how to segue into the fact that I'm not only joined by you uh, on this uh, Wednesday evening. I thought you were daydreaming. We have some guests on the Contrarians today. Yes, first time guests. Very from, excited. From Spit and Polish, we have Ryan and Bartek, gentlemen, coming to us from across several ponds. How are you guys doing today? Very well, thank you. I am Bartek, and this is... I'm Ryan, and we're doing very well. We're, we're ready to go. We're ready to, to hit the contrarians real good. <laughs> this was like... I think this might have been the first time that somebody has requested, not just to be on the show, <laughs> but to be on the show for a specific movie. And because yeah. we, we announced a few episodes ago that we're doing this remake arc mm-hmm. and we mentioned that we might do a bonus episode on Walter Mitty. And it's like instantly the second that we posted the episode, <laughs> I got a message from these guys on Twitter saying like, hey, if you do the Walter Mitty episode, we should be there. And but- I, I can't tell if that's because they hate the movie or because they love it. We'll, we'll find out. In, I did, in I did say we were, we were experts on it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that could go either way. <laughs> so over a year ago or so, we did the uh, 2013 uh, Walter Mitty starring Ben Stiller. So for this one, we're going back nearly 60 years prior to that with uh, Danny Kay, the famous vaudevillian showman of, of sorts. <laughs> the uh, Travolta of the 40s. The Travolta <laughs> of, the, of the 40s and 50s. That's right. He can do everything. He can dance. He can act. It, uh, was, it was America in the late 40s. I was going to say, in, in especially with today, it was a pre-9-11 world. As oh, yeah. he, he mentioned, it was a, oh, yeah. a pre-Trump world, a pre-9-11 bit, yeah. world. Everything was... But uh, post-Hitler. But post-Hitler. So, <laughs> Fre- freshly post That beautiful Hitler. window. <laughs> post-Hitler. Yeah. Post-Hitler pre-9-11. That's that the golden age of America. Survived. <laughs> that wonderful 60 years, that buffer between <laughs> Hitler and 9-11. When a man could just daydream 50% of the day and still come out ahead. Yeah, and get a promotion at the end. Yeah. Danny Kay carried us into the promised land. <laughs> All right. So we are the Contrarians. If this is your first time listening, we thank you for the listen uh just to give a quick rundown our uh, mantra here is we rage against the rotten tomatoes machine find a movie that is rated quote unquote fresh fresh red tomato as it were uh make a case for what's not so great about it uh find a movie that's rotten nasty green splotch make a case for what's good basically here to prove that one uh art is subjective and just an overall uh 
satirizing the state of the the modern critic. Now, yes. uh, the first portion of this is Contrarian's Corner, where we'll go against what this movie is, which is fresh at, I believe, 83% is what I saw on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. Um, so if That's you want... I saw. Yeah. If you want to... I didn't, I didn't double check, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know how we really feel, stick around to the second half, aptly titled Real Talk. Now, that's who we are. Before we get into Walter Mitty, before we let our dreams take us away, uh, Ryan and Bartek, uh, why don't you guys give us a little uh, spiel, a rigmarole on what it is that you guys do? Well, we podcast, obviously, as well. <laughs> we talk about movies. We've had a few different show formats or a few. We used to do commentary tracks for, you know, similar movies that you guys have covered, but we... You know, for the most part, uh, for all the parts, we genuinely love them and appreciate those movies. We've done movie <laughs> what? We were the contrarians, except we were always positive. Yeah, and we're, and we're older, so, you know, we're smarter. Uh, we've done similar movies to you guys, like Wild Hogs. I was really shocked that they hear that one of their least favorite movies is Christmas with the Cranks. We love that movie. Um, oh, wow. You know, well, I was looking good God. <laughs> this episode is about to be derailed by a major discussion uh, about did, Christmas with we, the Cranks. You know, we we did Annie 2014, you know, the black one, Blanny, um, and, you know, several others. And more recently, we kind of shifted to doing a new weekly format in which we just uh, talk about movies that have come recommended, whether it be from me, from our boy Bartek, or heck, even from, from you guys. We got, we got recommended War Machine, um, and we just kind of chit-chat about movies and just kind of talk about them and kind of... Give him some praise, but also if we don't like him, we're going to say that we don't like him. Talking about The Dark Knight Rises then, not, not, not one of our favorites. But we will defend Annie more than Dark Knight Rises, because who's defending her? Hmm? Not Cameron Diaz. Not Cameron Diaz. We certainly didn't. But yeah, we just talk about the movies, guys. So let's smash Walter Mitty in the groin is what we're going to do, right? <laughs> we're going to be negative because it's fresh? Yes. Because, yeah, Rotten, Rotten Pato's pats him on the groin, so we have to smash it. So this one didn't get into the 50% like the, the remake did, but this one got fresh. No. Shocking. I think a big part of that, though, is we've discovered, and I'm sure anyone familiar at all with Rotten Tomatoes will know, is that... A lot of times movies of this era, you know, the movies from the 40s don't have hundreds of reviews like modern releases do. Uh, Julio, who's usually in charge of pulling up the quotes uh, for our movies, even struggled a little bit in finding them. What what were you able to uncover? Uh, well, I mean, what showed up were, I think there were like eight or nine reviews and two of them maybe were rotten. So it's like, okay, 83% out of nine reviews is really not that great. <laughs> but still, I would have gone with it, except that most of the quotes were not there. So the links were broken. Uh, and the quotes yeah. that were showing up were not really that funny. So instead, I did something that we've done a couple times before. And I turned to a more modern aggregate. I went to Letterboxd. Yeah. And I pulled some reviews from okay. Letterboxd. Just going to read a few quotes from there. Was the first one just like, it was just really good to not think about Hitler for a while. <laughs> <laughs> There were Nazis in this, though, so... Mm. That's true. A lot of They were getting mowed down by Danny Kaye. <laughs> You're going to see that these are more, uh, I guess, modern reviews. And obviously, they're not professional critics. Mm. So they're a little more... They're, they're spicier. Um, first one is from... The letterbox uh, sounds a bit more bit more refined than the YouTube and IMDb reviews that we used to find. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I think the letterbox people are going to be a bit more sensible than IMDb reviews or YouTube comments. It depends on how, how hard you dig. I, I just skimmed the surface. So I got three positives, and I'll save the three negatives for real talk. Uh, but we got BBBG Toby uh, gave it three and a half stars out of five. And he says, 
shows up the Ben Stiller version for the cheap, pathetic, charmless hack job that it was, largely thanks to a wonderful performance from Danny Kaye as the titular daydreamer caught up in a sinister plot involving the girl of his dreams and some hidden Dutch crown jewels. Mm. Cheap, pathetic, charmless hack job. Yeah, that Why? Was a bit, a bit much. <laughs> it wasn't a cheap movie. The budget was pretty high for that one. <laughs> that CGI was uh, was top notch. Sean Penn looked real in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, four stars out of five, says I was raised on this and other Danny K classics, and even though my kids have been on a diet of Marvel movies of late, they completely connected with the 1947 film. Bringing Marvel in. Good. You can enjoy both. Yeah, I mean, and also it's really unnecessarily fucking long, so I'm sure their Marvel <laughs> minds can hang around with it. <laughs> but they're waiting for the post credit scene. Yes. Where uh, Boris Karloff comes back from, from the dead. He's in the dark universe, thank you. Um, Would Danny Kaye <laughs> have made a great Captain America, I wonder? Uh, I don't know about that. I think he's a little too, yeah. too, too yeah, smiley. Whoa, whoa, did you, see, did you see his punch at the end? Pretty good. Yeah, but I think he he punched, he punched real hard. He's more of a quippy superhero. He's Ant Man. He's Ant Man. When he snaps into it and just motherfucks everybody at the end, <laughs> shut up, and then just goes on. And I was like, "There's a leader right there." Exactly. All right, and finally, Shay, three and a half stars and a heart, simply says, "Virginia Mayo can murder me, and I'd be okay with it." Jesus, <laughs> I did I comment that she she was an attractive woman. Yeah, I mean, she was smoking. She didn't murder anybody though in the movie. Or did she? That you're aware of. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's it's so hard to tell what's real and what's not in this in this movie. Anything could have happened. But uh, those are the quotes. So Alex, take us away. All right. So the secret life of Walter Mitty. We'll get in the real talk. Where obviously where the story is based off of. We went into that a little bit with the Ben Stiller one as well. But directed by Norman Z. McLeod, uh, released in the United States on September first, nineteen forty-seven. Uh, obviously, with movies like this, you get a hard have a hard time finding things like budget and box office. Uh, it made approximately 3 million in rentals though, is what I was able to find. And 3 million in rentals. It was a big deal. Rentals were like a thing. You remember video stores and shit? <laughs> um, starring Danny Kay and Virginia Mayo, Danny Kay, uh, most notably to me of white Christmas fame. That would be, uh, about seven years after this though. Most notably to me, Walter Mitty. Oh, not Peter Cottontail? What is No that? one watched Peter Cottontail? Peter Cottontail's the stop-motion animated Easter movie where Peter Peter Cottontail has to save Easter, and he's like the jaunty narrator of the movie. He sings, he dances, it's all like weird stop-motion. If you look it up, you'll Vincent Price is the villain, Iron Tail. It's a great movie. Like Hell It's yeah. just one of those little TV movies. But yeah, Danny, that's what I knew him from. I was like, oh, I know that voice. It's Peter Cottontail's <laughs> friendly narrator character. I feel pretty and cultured right now. <laughs> so, Walter Mitty, Danny Kaye, our main man is a gentleman who lives with his mother in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and commutes to work every day in New York City, uh, where he works at Pierce Publishing. So right away, similar situation to uh, uh, our more familiar Ben Stiller remake, except he lives with his mom, and she basically treats him like an errand boy every day when he gets on the train and pick this up for me and all that stuff. And uh, he, we're not painted the picture of a, a noble stand-up, you know, sturdy gentleman right off the bat. Or even a protagonist that I would like to follow. That's the problem. Even if I didn't have the Ben Stiller version to compare to, my main problem right off the bat is that Danny Kaye is playing somebody who 
would be just funny as a background character. It's the guy that lives with his mom and just doesn't have a, a backbone. But it's like, all right, that's cool as a as like a guy that's in one scene, two scenes, while our hero, somebody that's worth following, is doing his his adventures. But here we realize pretty quickly that we're stuck with this guy forever. He's yeah. su- he sucks yeah. so much that he has to just even get away from himself. His friends are birds. <laughs> His friends are birds. He almost crashes a car. That's how much he sucks. I mean, the real hero, If it's like what you said. It should be like, we find out he's not the real hero, but Tubby is. Like, Tubby walks in and is like, now he's the real movie star. (laughs) Here's a man. Tubby (laughs) in this is like... Tubby Tubby Wadsworth. He's the Pierce Brosnan to Danny Kaye's Mrs. Doubtfire in this. Yes. Yeah. That's, That's very apt because... When he's away, when Tubby's away, which is most of the movie, <laughs> you want him to you want him to come back. You're like, come on, can you inject him some testosterone into the proceedings here? It, it reminds it, me of a 1940s Patrick Warburton. You know, like we nice. need that masculine presence. Yes. We need that deep Tubby presence. We need the tick. <laughs> we need the tick. We need Lemony Snicket himself. <laughs> yeah, there, there was one thing with the mum that I noticed because like, um I have a mum and I love mum. Mum loves me too, <laughs> but um. With with the mum in this film, she just seemed really naggy, and I feel like that's not really mum, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a negative to this movie, because it's not my mum. <laughs> well, she doesn't really love him. I mean, I think that's the thing. That's uh, She seems embarrassed by him most of the time. And yeah, it's not mum. It's his errand boy, or her errand boy, I should say. Right. She loves a certain type of chips, though. We discover that. <laughs> soap chips? What the hell are soap Yum. chips? I uh, know. I, I think it explains itself. I had chocolate the other year that tasted like soap, and apparently it was like meant to be like that. Yeah, so she loves chips more than her son. Yeah, who would have guessed? And like I said, that's not mum. Long lost treasures of the 40s, soap chips. So we did reference the Ben Stiller movie and it's featured CGI. And I'm just going to be honest, gentlemen. After, you know, you've had that and you go to this and the the daydreams and hallucinations are as, you know, Bush League as they come across here. Yeah. I understand it was a, an older time, but it's going to hurt your experience once you've seen CGI Sean Penn. Right. Like I said, I tried not to compare, but it was impossible because the the contrast was so strong. Here, every time that, that uh, Danny Kay, the Walter, goes into a hallucination, a fantasy sequence, it, the entire thing stops. It's like the movie stops so we can get a close-up in his face, and then the slow dissolve, and then he goes on into this... This fantasy, this most of the time, is completely unrelated to whatever's going on with the plot. Like, it'll have like one thing in common. You know, they were talking about hospitals, yeah. so he'll think about hospitals. The Western one was the worst one. <laughs> yeah, the, the Western one. Maybe, oh maybe the kid. Um, what was it? Um, Walter Slim Mitty as well. He had like four <laughs> different names. Choose one, guys. <sighs> but it's like you know, it was the climax of the film. He's driving, then all of a sudden he sees a thing. It's like, oh, time to stop the fast pace that we've just established for this climax and have this sequence. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the movie stops in its tracks. That's something that the Ben Stiller movie did really well. Because the the fantasy sequence in the Ben Stiller movie, sometimes you don't even notice that you're in a fantasy sequence. You know, it's just the transition is so yeah. smooth. But, but here... It's so smooth, it makes you believe that Adam Scott's beard is real. I mean, <laughs> that's how good the dream is. And there's no moments of worry. I was telling Julio, there, like one of his daydreams here is while he's starting a fire in his home. <laughs> or driving, or driving, you know. Driving, that's true. yes. Stopped at a green light, which I know how annoying that is dealing with traffic. It's it's a lot of anxiety provoking yeah. situations. Walter Mitty, for all his daydreaming faults, his actual life is again he works at Pierce Publishing. 
for uh, his boss, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Pierce, who just emasculates him on just a, a daily basis. It must be part of his his daily routine. Just yeah. mean as hell to Walter Mitty. Steals Walter's ideas because uh, the new project is going to be Hospital Love Stories, right? And that was Walter's idea? Yes. That sounds way hotter than it turns out to be. Well, yeah, you know, so Walter says. I mean, the, the boss came up with it two years ago. I, I believe the boss, you know. I think, <laughs> I think the real problem is the hero should have been Tubby and the boss. You know, two of them working out hospital love stories while Walter comes in and knocks over a water cooler. That's what the real movie should have been. Who who do you want to follow? Do you want to follow the guy who has a catchphrase in his daydreams or the one that has a catchphrase in real life? Yeah. Do you want tuck it up, tuck it up, tuck it up? Or do you want Mitty? We forgot to mention also that Walter lives with his mom and then his arranged-to-be wife, his fiance, and her mom as well. Oh, don't forget the dog. Yeah, the dog that hates him. But Queenie. So they come to visit. Queenie. Yeah, they come to visit, and they, they end up staying for the rest of the movie. Okay. Right? That's, yeah. that's what happens. Because it, it rains. Right. Because <laughs> it rains. <laughs> people, like, we what is this? <laughs> Back in the 40s, people were not prepared well, to if you made a film in, if you made a film in Technicolor... And you got wet, you'd melt. That's just a fact. I mean, that's just 100%. So they couldn't let those poor actresses walk out in the rain or they would melt. These are still the days where if you got a bad cold, you were probably going to die. So yeah. We go about uh, Walter Mitty's day-to-day. Uh, through these daydreams, he continues to see this woman, this woman of his desire, of his dreams. Not unlike uh, Mike Myers in Wayne's World 2 sees the weird naked Indian yeah. in his dreams at night. Here, Walter sees... I guess, the 40s version of Laura Leamy. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, you know, Virginia Mayo. Did she remind you of somebody else? She reminded me of Virginia Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the movie the movie tries really subtly to get by by going like, hey, look, it's Virginia Mayo. She's in his dream. And the first dream we have is like him being a sea captain. And the movie thinks it's being real clever because Virginia Mayo was best known for doing Mutiny on the Bounty. And the film's like, ah, do you get it? Do you get it? Guess what? Only I got it because I looked it up. I mean, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, I clearly didn't get it. So so uh, point down uh, for the movie again. It's really insensitive to the 2019 audience. Yeah. <laughs> There's the equivalent of Ryan humble bragging about his film knowledge. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know. I've been podcasting with him for four and a half years. I'm used to it. Five, five years next month. Yeah. Hey, we're not too far off that either. Yeah. I think that's like the same time we started. Yeah, five, five years, years uh, for us at the end of October. Yeah, yeah but, same here. Yeah, but who's covered Big Fat Liar? Us. Yeah, that's right. You guys haven't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's just kind of living his life, right? Like, everything's going fine for him. Virginia Mayo is a girl in his dreams. Things are going great. He's, his boss may be a dick, but, like, or allegedly a dick, you know. So, so Walter says this is his narrative that we're giving. Like, I'd like to see it from the boss's perspective where he's worrying about his wife's heart attack. Yeah, I completely understand uh, why it's, you know, Danny Kay is a big star, so they have to give him the lead role. Mm. But really, it would be more interesting if the story was told from anybody else's point of view yeah. like the pigeons and, and later in the film <laughs> from the part where they start gaslighting him and taking him to like the therapist and all that the boss basically becomes like a father character so it's like the film even wants him more to the forefront yes. oh oh we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit <laughs> i want i want the boss to be my daddy at the at the, the very last scene of the film is literally the boss taking the the love interest to go look at something away from walter so it's yeah. like who's the real star <laughs> yeah exactly the uh, virginia mayo becomes she comes to life in a very weird science like twist here um she sits next to walter on the train on the way into work 
And uh, she pretends to be Walter's wife to avoid a masher, as she calls it. And Julio and I had to look up what the hell a masher was. Did it was you guys a- know what a yeah, masher was? Yeah, yeah, I did. You use it to mash potatoes. Um, that was my first thought. And, <laughs> Mine too. Uh, yeah, um, I kind of just guessed it meant like thug. From what I was able to find, it was a term used to describe men who think they are the salt of the earth and women are repulsed by them type of thing. Ah. So they make sexual advances that aren't reciprocated. He continues to follow Rosalind uh, Van Horn, as we find uh, out um, Virginia Mayo's given name in the film, uh, follows her down to the pier in a taxi cab um, through a series of happenstance. He gets dropped off at his office, forgets his briefcase, so has to track it back down to the pier where she was heading. Gets down there, reconnects with her. Some man named Carl is with her now. Yeah, an uh, old dude. Just an old bald dude. That he helps them load their suitcases into the uh, taxi. Once he gets in, it's revealed that Carl's been stabbed. All the while, mm. he made sure to uh, slip a, a little pocketbook into Walter's bag. Yeah, which looks like Walter's book, which looks exactly like Walter's little to-do list book. <laughs> Conveniently. Th- yeah. yeah. Well, we own we all own a little black book, don't we? They sell them two Not for anymore. one at the Dollar General. <laughs> well, now we have smartphones. Well, that's a little <laughs> we black don't book. Need... <laughs> well, they're all identical. <laughs> Electronic black book. I like that Julio yeah, lives in a world in which paper doesn't exist. I like Julio's like, we don't need books <laughs> now, Ryan. Who carries well, we a little physical to-do list when they go shopping? I only use phones now. Like, well, I mean, that's the point of the movie. He didn't have a mobile phone. I know it was the 40s, but, you know, this movie could have been ahead of the times. <laughs> There's literally an app cold notes where you can just make your shopping list just just brief real talk i mean walter kind of gave the the lay work for mobile phones with coming up with the idea of a pocket-sized book i mean that's pretty impressive moving towards it that's that's the seed of it yeah carl here dying not unlike vin diesel and saving private ryan uh, just (laughs) urging walter to take the book from him uh we get back to the office Pierce is just giving him all types of shit. There were several parts in this. I was expecting him to backhand Walter and just be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But all the while, he tries to report this to the police and then everything vanishes. Yeah. So we're it's like the movie's trying to do three different things at once, right? Because you have the the really silly, wacky comedy at the publisher's office where Walter's just a klutz and nobody gets him because he's an idiot. And then you have the spy thriller where Walter's involved in this intrigue with the, with the notebook and the, the murderers and the really mysterious thing. And then there's a psychological thriller where, and this is the big missed opportunity for me where you kind of want it to be about Walter's sanity. You know, I knew that it was too much to hope for, but I really wanted it to be about, Walter's like descent into madness where you just see him becoming like more and more delusional as the movie goes on and the big reveal at the end because it's the 40s I was like I'll forgive it if the big reveal at the end is that he's just in an insane asylum and everything that was that he and Tyler Durden are the same person yes yeah him and uh and uh Virginia Mayo are the same person <laughs> I would like I would like it if like he's in the asylum and then Bruce Wayne comes up at the bars and he's like, so is it true? Do you know who Batman is? And he's like, I am Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. And he's like <laughs> flapping his things. And then the doctor is like, yep, absolutely crazy. This mysterious black book has been handed down to Walter now. So Rosalind knows what it is. Takes uh, Walter to meet her uncle, Peter Van Horn. Um, he explains that his life is in danger. There's a 
group named the Boot that want the black book as it contains information on diamonds, rubies. Let's it's see, it's crown Something. jewels, crown jewels, right? And Hidden art, by the and Nazis art, and art. I believe yeah. he's like uh, arts. It's like the Simpsons where all all the famous paintings that have been hidden for years and years. Uh, <laughs> So all the while he's explaining that his life's in danger, but we have to get in the Danny Kay comedy hour where he's trying to sit down in a chair and the cushion keeps coming off it while he's trying to balance tea in his hand. This goes on for like 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. This was directed by Judd Apatow. Yeah, it's uh, Danny Kay versus the chair and the chair wins. <laughs> You're so distracted by Danny Kay and the chair and the, the, the fact that he's holding the tea that when the scene ends and he puts the tea on the table that we weren't focusing on, it's like... Couldn't you have done this, like, backwards? <laughs> and then, to give more injury to it all, you said, like, Judd Apatow, then it becomes a Conjuring movie, because then a jump scare happens out of nowhere. A piece of toast comes flying at him. I'm scared. <laughs> I mean, you know, scared. I didn't expect this not only to not be a comedy, but also to be a horror movie out of nowhere. It's like in Citizen Kane, when a cockatoo just screams at you for no reason. Like, was the movie worried that we were asleep? And it was like, we got to scare him with toast. He's I mean, too busy fantasizing about radishes during the scene. I remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we move from this. Walter now knows that there could be a potential bounty or just uh, on his head or just someone after him to kill him. Doesn't even care about him. Just wants to get at him. Uh, so he goes to a department store and naturally is as conspicuous as humanly possible. Right. He buys himself a, a muzzle and dog biscuits. And he's, you know, uh, he's chewing down on him. He's chewing down on him. He's doing like a Kramer impression, though, trying to walk <laughs> around the place, tripping over everything. There's clearly a man, a henchman with a knife who, you know, it's the 40s. It was a different time. But he's just standing there in the middle of the store with this big 007 knife. Just and he's looking stroking at it, it. He's stroking it. He's like, my precious <laughs> knife. I must stroke it. And then D Danny Kay is, you know, 15 feet away from him <laughs> screaming. I'm not me. I don't have the black book. Uh, I would like to point out that at this point, approximately at this point in the Ben Stiller version, Ben Stiller already got his shit together. You know, he's he's stopped daydreaming. He's jumped on a plane and he's on a quest. Danny Kay is just wandering around, knocking stuff off shelves, not even knowing what's going on. One thing that I had with this scene was, you know, this is the secret life of Walter Mitty. He has daydreams and things like that. He's clearly in, like, a pet department and, like, you know, he's eating dog biscuits. He's got the muzzle. Like, clearly they're trying to say, like, oh, he's an animal. He's being hunted. And I can see that's really <laughs> that's really clever, but he's not an animal. The muzzle doesn't really do anything. It's, it's like you could have made a daydream out of this. He tries to wear the muzzle to conceal his identity, all the while making sure everyone in the, re the store looks at him. And is just admonishing everything he does. The only thing that was missing is like him grabbing the, the black notebook and putting it on his head as a hat. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the part where I think we have to mention, like, the, the film has the word secret in the title, but there are no secrets in this film. Or life. Yeah, everybody everybody <laughs> knows that he daydreams. It's not a secret. The secret life of Walter Mitty, it's, everybody's aware of it. There's literally one of my favorite quotes in this movie I wrote down was some really, like, 1940s kind of, uh, uh, like, sleazy playboy kind of guy in the office walks up to him and goes, Hey, dream boy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
this guy should be the lead because I'm getting aroused by him just yeah. calling him a dream boy. I'm like, I wish I was that dream boy he was talking to. That guy's a catch. Make him the lead character. All right, settle down, dream boy. <laughs> if not Tubby, that guy. I, I know exactly who you're talking about because I remember thinking that maybe he would be the equivalent of the Adam Scott character. But no, we never saw him again. No, I guess the boss is the equivalent of the Adam Scott character. But the boss is, doesn't have a, uh, like a, a beard like Adam Scott, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you could argue Adam Scott didn't have a beard either, but whatever. <laughs> so Walter continues through this department store. I guess it was the Sears of its era. Uh, accidentally wanders into, I believe it's a woman's changing room. He then needs to hide the black book, so he puts it in a box of negligee that's set out for delivery, ensuring that we get a comedic set piece down the road. I'm very, I'm very glad you have the very pure mindset of this, Alex, because before the women's change room, he walked into like a, a they were showing off. Yeah, they're showing off. They're showing off the corsets. Yeah, it's like they they were trying to give us like this sexual attention, and and the movie <laughs> they, they were trying to to make sure you were awake, like you said. Yeah, they were like, are you turned on by ladies in 1940s slips? Yes, I guess. I mean, in in the 40s, maybe I mean, she has a knee. <gasps> <laughs> Gratuitous knee nudity in the 40s, and Danny Kaye just couldn't. He can't seem to. You know, he could not care less. He's just. <laughs> I'm just scared for my life. Uh, they could have done like the, he walks in there. This should have been like Austin Powers where he walks in and like, you know, his jaw drops and his tongue rolls out like a carpet on the floor. And and everybody like there's uh, flowers and vases and whatever covering everybody's like yes. private parts. So really everybody's naked. Yeah, it should have been like a modern comedy where like he trips over his dick and then he's like apologizing for tripping over his own <laughs> penis. And then, you know, we get like, I don't know, Rob Corddry or someone come in and be like, dude, it's okay. And then everyone like stands there for another five minutes just improvising. It felt very rehearsed, like there was a script for this movie. And I'm, I don't know. It just yeah, Well, it's a good thing they don't do any other sort of like fashion show in the film after this. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Walter gets back to the office. He thinks he's being followed. Uh, lo and behold, Frankenstein's monster himself enters the fray as uh, Boris Karloff is there as... Yeah, the mummy. The Dr. mummy himself. Because he was also the mummy. That's right. He did like a double double duty in the Dark Universe. He was he was the mummy and Frankenstein? Frankenstein's monster, monster? and the mummy, yeah. He, yeah. he, he, he double dipped. Dr. Hollingshed. Hollingshed, yeah. I believe was his name. Yeah. Whatever the case, he's there passing himself off as a, you know, just a run-of-the-mill author. He's Boris Karloff. Despite I mean... <laughs> looking menacing as all hell. He's dressed like he's from the 18th century. Like, it was so odd. He's like, <laughs> he, he, looked, he looked like he just came from an expedition from Egypt and he brought back some artifacts. He's like, boys, I brought back a, a, a sphinx head. And he, like, slams it on the table. He looks like he was trying to, like, you know, dress up with Nosferatu to go to a party or something. And that hairstyle. I was about to say, I expected him to talk like, you know, Nosferatu. Or, uh, Dracula? No, what I expected him to talk like is um, uh, Robin Williams as the genie <laughs> doing an impression of a zombie. He's <laughs> you know, like, hello, oh, I, I bring that. new stories. The <laughs> <laughs> that Peter Lorre style, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I felt, by the time they brought Karloff into the movie, it just felt like a desperate attempt to just have something stick. Because by now, they've kind of run out of steam with Danny Cage's stick. It, it, so we needed an actual bad guy. And, and Boris Karloff is probably the best they could do in short notice. I also pine for the days of the uh, naivety and just, you know, ignorance is bliss that audiences here 
probably had no hankling that he was a bad guy at first. They're just like, oh, this guy's here to sell him his stories, despite the fact he's literally random task from Austin Powers. Yeah. Uh, he's explaining how to kill a man by putting your thumbs in the base of their, their, their that, head. Yep, that's he right. almost does it to Danny Kaye. Yeah, that's the, the closest we get to a, a major set piece here is Danny Kaye hanging out the window. <laughs> so Boris Karloff's there. He's, he's clearly a henchman. He's there to get the black book. He chases off Mitty. Uh, he tries to throw him out of this skyscraper in New York City. Mitty slinks away, is able to walk along the um, concrete ledge outside his window and get into uh, Mr. Pierce's office. This is actually the second time in the same day that he's come into his office and done um, Hijinks. pratfall after pratfall. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just so lazy. It's basically they just recycle the same jokes from five minutes prior. Mm-hmm. And it's just he bumps into the same guy and then hits the same water cooler and lets the same pigeon in. <laughs> just, yeah. come on, man, just just shave some minutes off this thing. Yeah, it would have been better if he tripped over his dick. Someone like Kevin Hart <laughs> came in and told him that it's okay to hire a black guy to teach you how to survive prison. And then, you know, this movie would have been a 10 out of 10, but... He just recycled the joke again. Knocked that poor old man off of his chair. Is that old man okay? Did we we didn't see the scene in which he went to the chiropractor? We never see him again. <laughs> yeah, that means he died. He died. Yeah. <laughs> and then things go from bad to worse for Walter with his day because he goes back home and Tubby's there, and they just are just hazing the fuck out of him. He's <laughs> well, like, "I got a gift for you, buddy," and it sprays <laughs> this like toxic powder in his face that makes him sneeze repeatedly and he becomes two-faced like he just gets sprayed on one side of his face it's like ah <laughs> you know it's really weird this is a tangent but like you know we're, we're australian so we we don't really talk to americans that much so when you do the impression of tubby just there and you put on an american accent i'm like oh that was a really good american accent <laughs> so you did a good accent <laughs> of yourself i think this is when we actually meet tubby for the first time i don't think we had met him till then I thought we saw him once before. Oh, did we? I thought we, this was the first time we saw him. I think we heard he was mentioned, but I thought this was the first time. He's like, hey, he guys. He made such an impression on us. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, hey, guys, once it's me. Him. It's me again. Like, <laughs> it's me, Tubby. Yeah. Well, once Tubby shows up, it's it's just such a magnificent event that it reverberates forward and backwards. So you feel like you saw him earlier in the movie, but really, he just showed up in the middle. Heck, I feel like he was in the Ben Stiller one, even. Like, that's how good of a mark he <laughs> left. It's like uh, Matt Damon in Interstellar. You just assume he's in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. They're playing cards, go fish, some, some game. Uh, and this is probably the most practical or most related daydream in the entire movie is when uh from here walter's dealing cards and then begins dreaming of him and um tubby yeah the 1800s civil slightly post-civil war civil war era they had plantations they're gambling for plantations (laughs) and ownership of women america (laughs) isn't it great it goes as you would expect walter wins the hand and then uh, Virginia Mayo pops back up in this. Right. She was the woman that they were gambling. Yeah. And, but, oh. Right. But then he says, don't worry, I'm not going to claim you as my prize. Yeah, he didn't Instead, want, he didn't want that in the first place, apparently. He was all like Shakespeare. He was like, oh, you want to pluck a star from, from the sky and put it on the table? Like, I'm not up for that. I don't like stars. I'm Danny Kaye. I am the star. <laughs> Such an egotist. You're right. I think it was Civil War, because doesn't he say, like, he's he's off to duty the next day or something? Yeah, like that? he says, this is my last yeah. I don't know, I was too distracted by all the... I was, distracted, I was distracted during that scene by all the bubbles. And also that extra detail about going off to duty. We've already had, a, you know, one where he is a war guy. 
Yeah, we already had World War II fighter pilot earlier in the movie where he's like, I'm off to war again. We get it, Danny. Yeah. You love war. You're, you're a warmonger. <laughs> What's this movie severely lacking is an, a montage of Danny Kaye and Lee Schreiber fighting through all the wars. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, it's almost like there's no consistency between the flashbacks. <laughs> there's no continuity. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that really got me. I remember in your 2013 Walter Mitty episode, you would bring up the unfair comparison to Forrest Gump, but this one here, I think this is one really wanted to be like an early Forrest Gump. That's a really good point. Making sure he's like in every era, surplanted in every significant era up until that point. Yeah, yeah. And I think he runs at one point during the movie too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 police station scene. They run in and out. Yeah, and they say that he has a kind face or a nice face. Many people tell Danny he has a nice face and uh i think he might i don't know i think in the, in the 40s that was that was how people told you that you were stupid in the 40s it was like, oh you have a nice face that oh it's a nice person oh. <laughs> but yeah they're just betting on a woman and then he's like i don't bet on women you're pretty virginia mayo just reinforcing the fact that she's pretty i i, I know she's pretty I've seen her with my oh, eyes. I have eyes. Yeah, I can. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was mansplaining to her because she was pretty. Because it was like we all knew, but she didn't know about it. The duo of Rosalind and Walter are back together, and they're tracking down the black book. They're looking for uh, where the negligee that Walter hid it in is being delivered. They go to this house, and again, we get this comedic set piece of you know Walter doesn't really know how to speak like an adult that doesn't find himself into bad predicaments. And basically without, you know, his knowledge is implying that him and this woman, this man's wife have been sleeping together. It's like, I'm just here to go through her uh, nightgown or something. Hey, to corset, that extent. Yeah. corset. Yeah. Corset. There you go. Basically what ends up happening is the delivery boy gets knocked out because of this. Fortunately, back in these days, we, we, talked with our fists and not with our assault <laughs> rifles of today so that the delivery boy got to get up and walk away fortunately not, not, don't shoot the messenger it's punch the messenger there you go <laughs> but this this entire thing is pointless because they don't get the book that's right they don't even get the right negligee right the book was never there in the first place so this entire sequence which goes on forever as most sequences in this movie is there for what there's not even a musical number. What exactly well, is it showcasing? To give the movie a defense, it's showcasing that Walter Mitty is is a, a center of chaos, you see, because that poor delivery guy, he's just going through his day, you know, he's kissed his wife goodbye, he's like, I'm going to have a great day without being punched in the face. And then, because of Walter's crazy antics, see, this is why Walter's such a terrible hero. This poor delivery guy, he got punched in the face, doesn't even know why. I mean, I don't know what work and health and safety was like back in the 40s, but I don't think that man got compensated for his teeth that got punched out, probably. I think he... Walter is the issue. Walter <laughs> is the issue, not the Nazis. Walter. And you know what? We're talking about Walter, but I think maybe even the director wanted us to laugh at this scene. Just reprehensible behavior. You can tell that this was made by an aristocrat of some sort. Like They're like, laugh at the poor person being punched. Yeah. It's I, just I, so despicable. I did notice that this film was labeled as a comedy, so I I guess that was a comedy <laughs> from here the duo of rosalind and walter go to a fashion show because in case you were in the bathroom or getting refreshments at the previous uh display of fashion we need another one yes exactly the daydream here being walter is the flamboyant hairdresser of the fashion show he's the hat maker anatoly of paris Yes. And he confesses yes. that he hates women randomly partway through the song. It was very odd. <laughs> That's right. He's like, and I hate women. 
I'm not joking. That happened, and I'm like, what? Why? Where did this come from? No, yeah, because one of the one of the reading in the movie, they made sure to distinguish that he's supposed to be a homosexual in this scene. Oh yeah, that's oh, right. <laughs> therefore, the line "I hate women." Yeah. Well, it would have been easier if he had said, "I like men." That's what all straight men fantasize about. Yeah. Hating women. Yeah, this it's weird that this movie pivots that being that being homosexual is that not that you're attract not attracted to women, but you hate them. Well, that's what a lot of phobias are. You hate rather than your fear. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, that's what the forties thought. They're like, while while Danny <laughs> while while Danny was saying that, he was doing phrenology, like he was trying to determine the skull shape of someone to determine if they were evil or not. And yet, the thing you're meant to be afraid of is toast. Yeah, of toast, not not of his you, the his homophobia and sexism. <laughs> this is the second big set piece for mm-hmm. Danny Kay. Musical a, number. Musical number yeah. where it just uh, much like with the fantasies, like all the fantasies, is the movie stopping to a halt so that he can just have a solid ten minutes of just performing yeah. a song and and just make doing voices and, and just being wacky. It has zero relation to the plot. At this point, considering that he knows that he's he's being hunted by a murderer, you would think that his fantasies would be a little darker. Mm-hmm. You know, it would yeah. be all about being chased in, in life and death situations, not musical numbers about hats. Yep. Yeah. And let's say hypothetically that, you know, these sequences work and like you do enjoy having these 10 minute sequences. I know I've brought it up before, but I have to bring it up again. That Western sequence, it was literally like two minutes. <laughs> So they weren't even being consistent. They didn't even have sets for that one. They, they just didn't. had like like finished. like frames. I mean, what's going on? Some could argue his dreams are deteriorating over time, and that's shown in each dream sequence that there's less and less sets. But I think it's just that they ran out of money because Danny Danny K needed to have a gold ring on his finger. They kept adding fantasy sequences, but the budget was not increasing. So by the time you get to the cowboy sequence, it's just cardboard boxes. It's like it was like Justice It's like Justice League where they kept throwing money at it, but along the way they kind of ran out of stuff, so they just have like a fake CG lip. Like it's just like that, but that's Danny Kay. Like and, he's know, like, oh we couldn't afford a Western set. Oh and well. It's just so disgusting because imaginations in real life are they're endless. You can do anything. But then when you watch a film and they're running out of budget, it's it's like double pathetic on a meta level it's like the nightmare on elm street we just did how the last shot looks so shitty and it's because wes craven didn't want to do it and it was just like fuck this let's let's just get it over with it'll look how it looks um the the inflatable doll yeah yes yes yeah yeah Yeah. that uh not not the ending wes craven wanted so i think he was just like all right well Fuck you, then. It's going to look as <laughs> shitty as possible. I think the difference is that here, Daddy K was like, yeah, this looks great. Yeah, it looks like an, <laughs> Let's go with yeah, this guy. Yeah, it looks like an American in Paris before that movie came out. Sure, why not? They retrieve the black book at this fashion show, fortunately, after all that. Rosalind goes back to Walter's house with him while he has to kind of hide her from the other women of the house. Again, a lot of things played for laughs here. Danny Kay whistling incessantly and uh, playing the piano. Pretending that he's been playing the piano. Correct. He doesn't know how. So they take the book. He and Rosalind have a cup of tea and then head out to go return it to uh, her uncle Peter, who has been facilitating this whole operation. Mm. And then wouldn't you know it, it's a swerve. He is the boot. Yeah, it's M. Night Shyamalan twist where, what is it? She notices a photo under the desk of Carl, the man that got stabbed earlier. Yeah, it's of the guy's passport. It's like the closest thing to her, like finding a a, a paper like on the floor. It's the Kaiser Soze. Yeah, well, it's like to do list: kill Carl, <laughs> <laughs> steal black book from Walter Mitty. It's like, oh, he's the villain. It'd be like if all four of us were in a room and like one of us dropped a thing and one of us noticed, like, oh shit, there's a photo of Danny Kay. 
<laughs> One of us is in league with Danny Kaye. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been great to like like, and then they show that he actually does have a boot. Not that he's German, but he actually is physically disabled and has like a shorter leg, so he has this massive boot shoe it's like he wasn't like oh it's a nickname because he's german or whatever like dust boot or whatever it's no no he wears a singular boot that's why we call it's him the, the boot, boot it's the boot from that simpsons episode where they go to australia yeah yeah the simpsons episode where they go god to damn australia. it you, be, you beat me to it i was gonna bring that up i was gonna say that was a really topical reference so when it's revealed uncle peter's the leader of the boot or is the boot there's almost like a hello 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 of boris karloff and the other two henchmen appearing in the background yeah what they do is they sedate Walter, uh, some they scotch or brandy or whatever the the libation is, put something in it, knocks him out. He wakes up the next day. His uh, mother is there along with his new dad, his boss, <laughs> Mr. Pierce. Yeah, this is what, what you guys were referencing earlier, yes, yes. and it, it this is where the movie stops making sense completely. One because before before they're captured. Virginia Mayo has the great idea of hiding the book in plain sight. She just puts it in a drawer, mm-hmm. uh, and and somehow they never find it. A weird drawer. Like <laughs> I, I've had, I've owned a lot of desks, but do a lot of desks like that have a drawer, a little tiny drawer in the left hand corner on the front of the desk? Yeah, away from where you're sitting. Away from where you're sitting. Is that like for for the guests? courtesy maybe, like maybe hey you're over there <laughs> <laughs> like you know in movies where they have the villain like this where they're sitting across at the desk and the heroes are on the other side of the desk and they're in shorter yeah. chairs is that draw there for the people that are victims of the bad guy he's like you're you're pitiful to me there's a draw there if you want to use it usually the big trope with desks is that like the person that owns the desk can like secretly do things underneath the desk like oh he's getting his gun ready <laughs> is that like for like balance like oh you get a chance it's- to well, there's always secret drawers in desks, but I guess that one is like, it's so secret that they put it the plainly on the it. front of it. Yeah. The boot never noticed. I mean, being as obvious as possible has worked for Walter thus far. So <laughs> I think maybe uh, Virginia was taking a leaf out of his book. Rosalind's just following the example. But then, so so you have that, and then you have the fact that the boss just does a complete 180, goes from being somebody who constantly demeans and mistreats Walter to being somebody who's just so concerned that he offers to cover all the medical bills and and cover the bills for the destruction that he's caused so far. And it's just, he seems actually worried about him. Uh, on a base level, you see him throughout the film wanting to deal with anyone that isn't Walter. And now all of a sudden, it's all about Walter. So the situation now has become that everyone thinks Walter's gone crazy and he's suffered this big mental breakdown. He is unable to determine if it's fact or fiction what's been happening now because Boris Karloff reappears and explaining to him what's been happening. You know, he's had this mental breakdown. Uh, He needs to get some rest. All the while, there are these things happening that are making Walter, you know, second guess and question what's going on. There's the biggest plot hole in the movie happens here. And that is later on, we find out that uh, Virginia Mayo has been in a coma the entire mm. time, right? Since they were captured. Yeah, shock. Yeah, there's a moment when, uh, you know, he's talking to, Walter's talking to Boris Karloff, and Boris Karloff is telling, yeah, you know, you work in this magazine publishing company and all these adventures that you edit, they're all about young women bound and gagged, and that's why, you know, you think of this girl that you must rescue. And then the door behind Boris Karloff opens, and you see Virginia Mayo tied to a chair, mm-hmm. gagged, 
fully awake. Yeah. So I think so they had staged that yeah. somehow, but yet then later they say that she was in a coma the entire time. Well, I think so, yeah, I think that's a plot hole on wow. the film's part. I think the film wants you to think that she's only in a coma once Walter has left onwards, and then she's like, "There's no help <laughs> for her," because in reality, like I don't even think it's the next day. I think it's like later that afternoon after he's been drugged. It's kind of odd. You don't know how time works in this movie. I mean, some could argue it's because it's all dreamlike. I think. It's 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 lack of planning. You know what? There's not only is there a plot hole, but there's a loose end. There's yeah. a woman in on this too, like the the nurse. For yeah, the... did she get away yeah, at the end? We like, didn't see her at the end. That's true. Like, I would love if they made the a sequel. bathing suit nurse. Yeah, yeah, the one in the bathing suit, and they had a. Uh, they really pre-planned this. They had a painting and everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> How long did they, did they take to just reset the entire uh, house um, to where it looked like a normal place? It's like. A, David Blaine special. We needed a sequence like they do in modern movies that are better, <laughs> where you just you just see them explain how it all happened. You could have him where he's just piecing everything together and you actually see them, you know, moving the paintings and putting a blonde that looks just like Virginia uh, Mayo gagged and bound in a, in a chair and everything. That would have at least showed some effort for, yeah. you know, them to make it all consistent. And then that blonde then lady of- could be the nurse. See, so she's playing a dual role. Like, that would have been smart. You know, that would have been Just change wigs. Yeah, like, she just takes off a wig, and she's like, I'm a nurse now. That's another thing. Two blonde women, too much. Two blonde women (laughs) in 1947? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Too much! (laughs) All of this is clearly messing with Walter's head. He doesn't know what to make of it. And you guys want to talk about time being a confusing, a sticking point, rather, of this movie. He then reveals that I'm getting married tomorrow to Gertrude, the woman that he's been arranged to wed. Back to the point we were making about Mr. Pierce having a much more defined role in everything. He he gives Gertrude away at the wedding. I mean, she has a mom that could have given her away. Um, Maybe the mom just didn't want to do it. Maybe the boss is just a universal dad. <laughs> Somebody had to hold the dog. Walter is that big of a sad boy that he's just... And has that little self-confidence that he asks his boss who emasculates him regularly to give his wife away. Massive cucking scenario. It would have been more convincing if they had a scene of Walter's mum, the mother-in-law, the, the, the soon-to-be wife, Tubby, and the boss all sitting together in a darkly lit room with a whiteboard planning out how they're going to screw over Walter some more. Like, they're like, okay, so how about we offer you, his boss, to walk her down the aisle just to get at him? And then the mum's like, ooh, ooh, and I'll plant the clogs in his jacket. They just wanted to see like how long it'll take to make him say shut up. Yeah, yeah that's they're like we're gonna break him. <laughs> and all of Tubby's ideas are just throwing some sort of powder in his face <laughs> or playing cards. <laughs> I'll take all the aces out of the deck. It'll drive him crazy. So Walter's rummaging through his pocket to pull out the ring, and he pulls out some sort of tchotchke or trinket that belonged to the, the little boots. Yeah, clogs. Rosalind. Yeah, yeah. yeah good that's luck, right. John. That's right. He realizes it was real, so he just takes off. This is where. Mrs. Robinson by <laughs> yeah. Simon Garfunkel begins to blare. Well, when he when and, he has uh, the boots, they should have had the Christopher Nolan noise because that's like Inception, <laughs> where it's like he has his little trinket that makes him realize top. that it's yeah. reality or fiction. He just starts spinning them on a Bible <laughs> and sees what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's he, a pretty it's a pretty underwhelming reveal, really. You know, you would think that after the hell that he's gone through, where he's doubted his sanity, to have that moment where he realizes. It was all true all along. Mm-hmm. Mm. That would that would be a much more powerful sequence, a, a much more powerful moment for him. But he kind of just like runs off, runs away from his wedding. That's gets taking into a car. place in the church from the November Rain music video, by the way. <laughs> yes, uh, gets into a car and then just 
gets into another daydream. Like, there's no sense of urgency here. I'm fuming. It's that Western daydream. Bartok is angry about that Western daydream. Where he fights Tubby. It's like two minutes of build for, you know, 10 seconds of action. Why is he fighting Tubby in, in that uh, in that sequence anyway? He should be fighting the boot. Well, you don't fight or a cripple. Well, you know, you don't fight the cripple guy. That's a bit mean. You know, the, <laughs> like, you know, even, even Walter has standards. Yeah, did the boss appear in any of his dreams? Because the mother-in-law appeared in the hat one and Tubby appeared in a few. But I don't think the boss or his mother or any of these other people really appear. It's just like them and Virginia Mayo. That's kind of it. It's kind um, of odd. I thought the boss... Was it the boss in the one where he's a pilot? I thought it was and, him, but uh, I couldn't tell because he had a mustache. And I was like, I don't know if yeah, it's him. And, they, and he sounded British. Right. They were using British accents. So like, at the time, I thought that maybe it was him. But really, like you said, he doesn't show up again. He so. had some hair yeah. on his lips. Thurst- so it could have been Queenie. You know? Thurston <laughs> Hall just... He was a seasoned actor at that point. He said, I'm not doing any of the CG bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we get through the Western daydream. Mitty uh, goes to the the home uh, of um, the boot. Uncle Peter. Peter Van Horn is trying to get that whole name out. And uh, we get a big sequence of he and uh, Rosalind fighting off the boot. And eventually, uh, in a Scooby-Doo-like ending, the police apprehend this was Peter, another probably who the second. He would have gotten away with it. <laughs> the second biggest missed opportunity in this movie is that you think that he's finally going to come into his own because he starts devising these sort of Home Alone esque traps based on the books that he's edited, yeah. right? And he he's like, oh, I'm doing this because that's how we did it, and like the murder and the Orient Express, and then he does another thing. He's like, this is how we did it, and the Mummy Returns or whatever. But it's like one of them sort of works. You know, it hurts him as well as hurting the bad guys. And then the other one doesn't work at all and instead only hurts him. Like he gets strapped. There should be one that he proposed where it was just him and her having sex. (laughs) That's just what he proposes. But quickly, since it's the 40s, quickly a priest comes in, marries them, and then leaves (laughs) because they can't have premarital sex. It's 1947. They just suddenly had sex. I'd imagine like Seth Rogen's playing Walter Media something. Yeah, yeah. Then we have sex. Yeah, yeah. Seth Rogen's playing. He's like, then we fuck. And I smoke a blunt. (laughs) And I play Pumba now. Norm MacDonald. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Then we have sex. (laughs) Just walk into the booth. Boudoir, it's two twin beds. Nice. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, they successfully thwart the boot. Really, the cops do it. Yeah, all I they mean, Danny to do K- is barely survive uh, at the very end. He who does he punch? He punches, punches Tubby. Tubby. Yeah, he punches, he punches Tubby. the hero yeah, of right. the movie. I mean, I was fuming. I was like, this is how you're gonna end Tubby Tubby's arc. I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm fucking fuming. Yeah, I'm fucking fuming Talk right about now. misjudging the audience's expectations, right? Because if nothing else, this comes at the end of, uh, of Danny Kaye's Oscar clip, right? He's just finally, this is Walter's moment of, of dignity. Forts off the boot, and then everyone's just giving him shit. And then he's like, stop. Shut up. Yeah, this is this is a uh, uh, Martin Lawrence at the end of Wild Hogs. Yeah. He's, he's a man again. He's like, slow your roll. I was going to say it's Clint Eastwood in... Uh... Unforgiven, where he says anyone shoots yeah. at him, he's going to burn down their it, barn and kill their family. It's Tim Allen in Christmas with the Cranks the whole way through. <laughs> he's going to say this podcast is going to end as abruptly as the movie did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you just brought up what I was going to bring up. When I was watching the film, I had to pause it uh, during this climax sequence for something, and I noticed there were two minutes left, and this was before the cops had even <laughs> entered the building. <laughs> and it was like, oh, you're going to wrap up? There's still like antagonists staring at each other and there's like 120 seconds left 
Yeah, well, they wrapped it up real quick. They had, a, you know, they this film's over a hundred minutes long. It had many fantasy sequences, but much like the final fantasy sequence, it's it's like rush. It's a a hallmark of movies of that era. Yeah. They, once the story is done, go home. It Return really... of the King. It is not. <laughs> yeah. Well, they even for a for a climatic speech, Danny Kaye's speech feels pretty pretty short. It's pretty mm-hmm. truncated. It's just like, hey, stop, stop messing with me, and then he punches Toby. And yeah. That's it. They should have had a scene afterwards in which he was like getting a medal on his chest from the p- c- police commissioner and like a sash, and he's in a parade. And then the boss is like, oh, I was wrong the whole time, and like gives him a promotion. Then we could have. That final scene. The scene where you see that the, he's promoted <laughs> and he's married now. Assistant editor. And then they say, you know what? You have a nice face for real this time. But <laughs> Walter gets everything off his chest. He gets promoted. Uh, he's married now. And to close the movie, he calls his boss. His first name calls him Bruce. Well, and- we don't know for sure that that's his first name. We just know that he calls him Bruce. And then the boss is like, Bruce! (laughs) Yeah, that's how it ends. Bruce! I'm not Bruce, I'm your dad. (laughs) The end. (laughs) The end. Literally. It just just fades to black really fast, and it's the end. And then Someday by Sugar Ray starts playing over the end credits. Um, There's a brief moment in in this movie, like, I would say, like, a solid 10 minutes when uh, you guys called it, and it's perfectly uh, defined, like, when he's getting gaslighted. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is the moment that the movie comes the closest to reaching its potential, fulfilling it. The problem is that even when it was happening, I knew that that wasn't going to be the case. That, you know, I was like, it's the 40s and I know that this is going to have a happy ending. So there's no way that he's actually crazy. But I would have loved it if that had been where the movie had gone. I would have forgiven everything else. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember in your other Walter Mitty episode, you were saying that there's a part where uh, the Ben Stiller Walter thinks that there's a like a dream sequence happening, but then it turns out it's real. It's like this film was bringing up the idea that, oh, the rest of this film is going to be a, a poignant moment like that. And I did see it coming, but unfortunately, come, it did not. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was going for that. All right. All right. Let's move this daydream along to real talk. Now comes the first movement. Presto vivace, argumento molto, contabile molto, choclo molto. And we have the first team, which is naturally played on the first film. This represents a young girl which is living with her wicked guardian who is a French horn. Now this young girl, who is a beautiful girl, and her wicked guardian, live all alone on a farm, and all she has for company are a hen. All right, we are recording real talk for the original Secret Life of Walter Mitty. All right. As I had mentioned in the first portion released in the United States, September 1st, 1947, uh, the financials i could find were fairly minimal but again directed by norman z uh, mcleod uh, produced by samuel goldwyn whose son samuel goldwyn jr produced the ben stiller remake in all in the family yeah uh, and based on the secret life of walter mitty short that was in the new yorker in the year 1939 now i can't remember if i wrongly attributed this was this? I think it was the fly that might have originally been in Playboy because I think I 
wrongly attributed one of those one time. I think it was the fly. I don't remember you saying it was sick. Okay. Yeah. Here I remember there. that coming up at some point. The homeboy that wrote this story initially was James Thurber. Uh, to quickly go through my trivia that I gathered, James Thurber offered Samuel Goldwyn $10,000 to not make the film. He was not a fan of it being adapted. And uh, he acknowledged the character Walter Mitty was based on his friend and writer, Robert Benchley. Uh, Thurber said that he got the idea for Mitty from the character created by Benchley in a series of shorts that he made for Fox and MGM, respectively, in the 20s and 30s. Thurber is also on record as saying he hated the movie and that Danny Kaye's interpretation of Mitty is nothing at all like he intended the character to be. <laughs> oh, what a bummer. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's entitled to his opinion, but... I ha- having not read the a lot of a lot of people who write who write these old things like back in the day they never liked the Hollywood interpretation like Raul Dahl hated every single Hollywood interpretation of any of his stories and same with this I guess like I guess maybe Hollywood should back off on adaptations <laughs> maybe that was the lesson they should yeah, have learned I was about to say that, yeah now. you're you're in a bad era to adopt that uh, style of thinking <laughs> I mean we we, we we were joking throughout the episode so far about how, oh, this is the, the Danny Kaye show, and I, I guess if you have an actor and you want to show them off, maybe don't have them represent someone that they're not. <laughs> uh, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that was what he didn't like. Uh, in an unused MIDI dream sequence, Boris Karloff appeared as uh, Frankenstein's monster. Uh, which would explain Mitty's yeah. fear of the Karloff's character. Test photos of Karloff and makeup exist, as well as a letter from Universal uh, granting Samuel Goldwyn permission to use the makeup design. So why didn't yeah, that's fair, they right? use it? I don't know. I think it would be too distracting. <laughs> no, no, I think I think it would genuinely be too distracting for what they were going for. I mean, Bartek mentioned it. The Western one is the most egregious. I don't know if you genuinely felt like that, but the most I egregious did, yeah. dream sequence. Because when you actually, when I look at my notes, they actually did spread the dream sequences out a long distance from one another than I initially remembered. Because mm-hmm. I've seen this a few times, but I always remember the dream sequences. But when you actually watch it, they're actually pretty f- evenly spread from one another. Yeah, and then they comes a point where like in the third act they kind of get in the way and i think like if you had another dream sequence with just boris karloff who is not a major player in this Mm -hmm. you 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 know and obviously just for the reference sake of he's frankenstein's monster could also just kind of get in the way of the actual story of what they're doing and the set pieces and you know maybe it was just a bit too much and they were like let's cut it it's like the first two are kind of closer together because they need to establish the woman reappearing in the dreams and then when you introduce and he's daydreaming yeah 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 introduce the habit introduce the idea of this lady and then all of a sudden ooh, ladies in real life you need that Mm. all in the beginning i could i could see them also just having like back then the idea of like why the fuck would we cross over a character from another franchise like their thought process being yeah like uh, like a cameo I, yeah, yeah i think i think they did a good enough job of just hinting that it's obviously boris karloff because he works in that pulp magazine where they're making these types of magazines oh yeah these he's types of stories. dark and brooding and like i said in the contrarian corner like he looks like he's just come from an expedition in egypt so it's kind of like the mummy kind of spook like kind of like wink wink but not like too over the head where it's like look here he is as the monster you know him for mm-hmm. point now and go i recognize it instead it's more kind of like subdued like for the people who argue that a lot of it's dreamy 
Boris Karloff's one of the people they point to and go, well, look, look, that's the one of the most famous horror movie actors of that time, monster movie actors of that time. And where does Walter Mitty work in a place that publishes these kind of things? So, you know, but I think if you put the Frankenstein's monster scene, it could just be like too obvious. Like, do you get it now, <laughs> yeah. audience? Like, here, you get it? I can, I can see that where so they, they finally... they restrain themselves. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they decided to show some restraint yeah. in, in, and go subtle <laughs> for once in this movie. Uh before before oh, we get into okay. it, uh, no, I do have nice things to say about it. Uh, but before we get into it, uh, I have three, as promised, three quotes from uh, Letterbox from people who didn't like it. No. <laughs> First one is from uh, BHC Corp, who says that's one and a half stars out of five, and says, "Wow, are the critics nostalgic or what? I don't get it. What's so funny about this movie? Danny Kay isn't. The jokes aren't. The daydreaming isn't. What's the point?" I I disagree. I laughed a lot during this movie. Oh yeah, it's fun. I did too. Yeah, yeah. and it was my first time watching it. Same with Alex. So it was uh, most of it was a surprise. Nice. Now this one, uh, it's actually a three star out of five review from Silver Saxophone. Oh. But the way that he started okay. made me laugh because he says James Thurber, author of the story on which the film is based, thought it should be called The Public Life of Danny Kaye. <laughs> so I guess <laughs> I guess that that's actually a really good one. Yeah, I guess that really, like you were saying, he didn't think that it was it was the character that he envisioned in the short story, and it was more of just Danny K being Danny K, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, take that Danny, take that Danny K. <laughs> yeah, I was making that joke. What what secret? <laughs> no, we can get into it. I know. I, um, I got I got one more. Uh, Jex. Uh, gives it one and a half stars out of five. And he says, so you know how there are remakes of movies and how the remakes are inferior to the originals? Well, that's not the case here. I didn't like this movie very much. Mm. Well, mm. Uh, I think that... And we'll talk a little bit about how it compares with the with the Ben Stiller remake. But I think they're very different beasts, for sure. I mean, they're yeah, going for yes. very different things, uh, and part of it is just reflective of when they were made. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep. also, this one is it goes into the the spy sort of yeah, it's a caper, right? Like a caper, like you know, hijinks. Yes, and uh, in the Ben Stiller one, it's just more about nostalgia, like the end of uh, of an era with like you know, Life magazine coming to an end, going all digital, and mm. a man searching that's for like a his midlife crisis film. Exactly, yeah, it's a midlife crisis movie. Yeah, much more of a man a trying crisis to find film. his purpose versus just this dude that's right hyperactively brained and somehow gets mm-hmm. tied up in a. A situation where the Nazis are after him. Right. This one is just like a straight well, up comedy. Is, this is an old trope. This was this was a standard comedy thing, right? Like, uh, I'm a big fan of this director's other works. Actually, um, one of my favorite films is the one he followed up after this called The Pale Face with uh, Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. And the pitch of that movie is Bob Hope's like a cowardly dentist who gets mistaken for being like the, the hero of the West by killing all of these uh, Indians, but he didn't actually do it. But people thought he did, and he just kind of like keeps accidentally looking like he's a hero more and more and more while he's actually a coward. And that's kind of like this kind of thing. And then later on, this director would kind of do a redo of Secret Life of Walter Mitty called My Favorite Brunette, where it doesn't have the daydreaming, but it has like this spy Nazis and Peter Lorre's in it it instead of Boris Karloff. And it's like they even use the same house. Like, the house that the the boot lives in, it's the same place. So it's like he kind of revisits this idea again down the road. My favorite brunette's also really good, but I think it's less... Does it have Danny Kaye? No, it has Bob Hope. He seemed to really like working with Bob Hope. And the director of Paleface, 
he he got criticized by the writer of the movie saying and the writer's like he didn't do a good job he 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 ruined my script so i'm going to make a sequel and the sequel's as loved as the original one so it's like kind of like uh eh, you know both both did a good job making comedy movies from the 40s and 50s so it's like i guess that's this thing like it is a reflection of the time like ben stiller made a more slow paced midlife crisis-y character full study character study movie in which he gets to travel around and be spiritually enlightened while this movie's kind of doing the 1940s comedy thing where it ends abruptly because oh you know laughs over now goodbye yeah and you know let's show the actors talents like they can sing they can dance they can do poetry and speech stuff and like all this spoken word crap and like let's chuck it all they in can there do pratfalls they can do everything so let's show it and that's just kind of the era that this yeah, was. I really, I really liked. Uh, I I made fun of it in Constraints Corner, but probably one of my favorite moments in the movie was uh, the two times that he comes into the boss's office through the window, and basically <laughs> yeah. he bumps into the same things both times. Uh, like the first yeah. time, I just smiled, and the second time, I laughed out loud. And I told Alex, I was like, I really wish that they he had gone a third time because that would have been just hysterical. It was, yeah. it just got funnier. Yeah, like keep raising the yeah. bar. But I don't know how they could raise it once he wa- knocked the water cooler off and he's <laughs> right. just like holding it the wrong way. And then I like how he solves that problem by just putting it on the floor. Just like, done. Like, a third time over. they could have had someone like refilling and they bump into it. <laughs> yeah. They end it good with the window breaking. That's great. Yeah. I love the pigeon too randomly flying in. <laughs> I was trying to remember the whole time we were Go recording on. the first half what the pigeon's name was. Keeps calling it out over and over uh, again. Yeah. Buster? No, something else, but I can't remember. Clancy. 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 <laughs> um, how, how familiar were you guys with uh, with Danny Kaye? Because this is my first Danny Kaye movie, and Alex has seen White Christmas. Yeah, we watch White Christmas it. every year. My family, it's part of our tradition. I going to say, I'm pretty much the same as Julio. I don't really know Danny I Kaye. I told Julio before, and I was like, this is... This is the kind of guy we said Travolta was the last of, a guy who could sing and dance and, you know, well, sing mm. and dance well and also act very well, be funny, be, you know, uh, serious when called he for. He could do yeah. drama. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. I own a lot of his movies on DVD. This is probably his best comedy like or most like the film itself like the film rises to his performance some of his other comedies are like the film is a little bit behind where he's at as a performer and that or the court jester where he and peter cushion has to fight off against each other he's a court jester and peter cushion's like the uh the nobleman who's trying to become the king and P- and he keeps like foolishly interrupting his coup um, that's a good one. And there's the Inspector General, and there's all these movies that are really like he he was just a decent guy, and I, I liked his stuff. Like you know, he's just been forgotten in time though. Mm-hmm. Even in that era, he was the lesser one. Like they had Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Joe Lewis and Dean Martin, all these other guys that were kind of at the forefront more than Danny Kaye was, because Danny Kaye was more of a solo guy. Well, a lot of these people in that era were doing duet. Mm-hmm. Well, he was like like us, <laughs> like us. Well, he was one of the few that was just by himself. Like oh, it's Danny Kaye, like in that comedy time. Because think about it, from that era, you don't have too many comedic actors that are just a singular person. It's usually a duo. Or trio. And he would hop on that train with White Christmas, him and Bing Crosby, which he's also <laughs> very funny in that. He has a really he has a really good dance number in that movie too. <laughs> Talented dude. Incredible dancer. There's a scene in the Inspector General that is just physical dance comedy at its height. Like it's so choreographed, it's like he's trying to dodge being 
stabbed and like it's all this crazy nonsense and that's the thing that i like about him is he 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 translates past that barrier of of time period where you could just watch him like a charlie chaplin type thing where it's like a purely visual like he is just funny with all the faces he pulls the mannerisms the physical comedy and all of that as well as delivering just the snappy jokes and whatnot like he's one of those guys where yeah this movie might be from 1947 but his comedy performance doesn't feel like a guy from necessarily just a guy from the 40s it feels like you know a real talented guy today could do this and it would be really entertaining still you're describing a lot of what i've said about ted knight Uh, i feel like that's a very similar situation to uh funny can be funny in any era and it's it shows the mark of a, Mm. a really talented comedian that you can be funny in any era and uh because physical comedy in my opinion is such a tightrope between you know i don't mean to criticize anyone that's ever been in a movie too harshly because they're trying their best but at the same time like physical comedy can sometimes come off as shtick and really annoying so uh yeah and it's depend it depends how they edit and film it i mean look at jackie chan's stuff from from his films they're hilarious and funny then you look at his american stuff it's the way they edit it and it's just like oh it's ruined you you, they're not as (laughs) Mm -hmm. fun like that's true, right? Like you know, Shanghai Nights isn't as hilarious as something from from his catalog. I just found out the other day he made a movie work. with Johnny Knoxville a few years ago that I don't know if it was released <laughs> in America or not. I think it was just <laughs> like Jack an Asian release. Did Jackie Chan break his dick or something in it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> hey man, Johnny Knoxville's a real actor now. Come on, <laughs> my name is Jackie Chan. Yeah, I saw, this is Jackass. <laughs> I saw him in Men in Black too. I know that Johnny Knoxville's we a real actor. Dukes of Hazzard. We saw him in. Du- we did Dukes of Hazard on Ooh. the show. Hey we man, him. that that movie's not as bad as people say it uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> we know, we know, we did it on the show. <laughs> Um, so let me get this right. Am I the only one who had seen this movie before? Yes. 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 Yeah. But my question to you is, did you watch it before the Ben Stiller movie? Yeah. Okay. Because I think that definitely affected my enjoyment while I was watching it because it's impossible Mm -hmm. not to compare them. And even though after the fact, I can acknowledge that they're very different beasts and they were going for different things. As I'm yeah. watching the movie, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm missing some of the emotional beats that the that the Ben Stiller story has, you know. And so I find myself getting impatient with the with the story, getting impatient with Danny Kay because I wanted him to stop daydreaming. You know, like one of the cool the cool things that yeah. I really like about the remake is that Ben Stiller goes in that arc where he's daydreaming a lot and then suddenly he stops daydreaming and starts having actual adventures. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, not the I movie's agree. fault. You know, I'm bringing that baggage with me when I'm watching it. But here it's more like, oh, well, he's always daydreaming. And the one time where I think that it gets in the way is what we actually referenced in Katrina's Corner, which is he's he's racing to the climax and the movie stops so he can be a cowboy for two minutes. And Yeah, they, they didn't need that one. Right. Uh, that's, so That's my problem with the movie is the third act. The rest of it I love. The third act is a little bit sloppy with pacing. So my criticism of it would be my immediate knee jerk uh, comment would be it doesn't age well, but that's not true because Mm. when I, when you say something doesn't age well, that typically means that something was acceptable at the time. It's not anymore. uh, Or, you know, it looks really bad or something like that with me. It's just, this is just how movies were then. Uh, And what I mean by that is like people like, myself weren't super jaded to point out things of like why the fuck is his boss giving his fiance away <laughs> like when movies like this were made you had your group of characters that were in the movie and those are the people that you're with the entire time and they all interact with each other even with and that criticism the movie 
can counter it by being like, well, they set up that the boss needs Walter Mitty because Walter's the only guy with ideas mm-hmm. and he does not have any. So he would go to any lengths to ensure, or he would have fired him years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a slimy interpretation. Like, even yeah. that, like, I agree. Like, it's just that the, the way that we do comedy now and this style of cinema is different. We don't just interject with musical numbers or dance sequences anymore because the actor yep. can do them. It's mm-hmm. more like now Judd Apatow wants you to improvise for 40 minutes and he'll cut it down to 10 minutes, that kind of thing. Like like before in The Contrarian's Corner, I'm like, this film had a script. Yeah. I've said on our show many times, many I, times. I miss comedy movies that had scripts. Oh, dude, you're... When they had scripts? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's been like Julio since this started. Yeah, I'm always just complaining when you can tell that they're just riffing in a movie because... I'm like, that's funny sometimes, but I actually find it funnier when it's fine-tuned to where you just have like yeah, a very it specific... The material. There's no reason a comedy should ever be a second over 90 minutes. And <laughs> to, to defend that, I don't consider the, this Walter Mitty entirely a comedy, so it, it's fine where it is. No. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think comedies need to hit that mark. Unfortunately, with this movie, it took that too much. Like, the ending is abrupt. That's why I say the third act and the ending is what lowers this movie. For me, it would be a 10 out of 10, but like it's lowered because the third act rushes through some important beats. It feels like maybe one or two more scenes linger on some stuff. Like We never even see the bad guys get fully done. Like They're just like, oh, okay, the police are here. Like We don't see them in yeah. handcuffs or, or anything, or any like well, reference to them. Yeah, like, it's just kind of done, and the movie kind of kicks you back. If you're not used to those kind of movies where they just end abruptly like that, you will be like, oh, what? Like, Bartek was mentioning, like, two minutes late, what? <laughs> Isn't it so funny? Like, that's what we've been conditioned. I remember when we did It's a Wonderful Life. It's just like, hey, he got his money back, and now it's over. It's like, wait, 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 what? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, right, the bad guy doesn't get punished in that one. It's just, you know, the movie's over. Have y'all ever seen the SNL skit where it was the alternate ending, where uh, Dana Carvey plays Jimmy Stewart, and they go kill old man Potter? Like, the whole town goes up. <laughs> no, and <laughs> no. It's, it's fantastic. Here nor there. But yeah, I, like I said, just kind of reiterating, I wouldn't say this doesn't age well. It's just, it is what it is from its time. Now, um, I didn't find myself having the same issue with as Julio did, kind of carrying in the other one. That being said, if mm. you ask me which one I like more, I would say the Ben Stiller one. And a big part of that is uh, the emotional beats in the movie resonate much harder with me, his relationship with his yeah. mom. Um, and also, you want to talk about that's a movie made for its time in terms of you have to have kind of an, an emotional backslide to it and you have to have 20 minutes after the climax to kind of settle the audience down before you take it home type of thing. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think the Ben Still one is of its time as well. Like, even now, these years later, you look at it and go, wow, we were so innocent then. <laughs> it's a it's a, fa- because it's a fascinating one. We don't get films like that anymore. No. Like, it was that and Stranger Than Fiction. Like, those two movies are ones I think that you put next to each other in, D- in a DVD cabinet, right? Like, these innocent kind of finding yourself comedy movies mm-hmm. that are relying more on the journey of the character more so and, than the gags. And a lot of the appeal is like the relatability. Like I said, it was a midlife crisis film, but even someone who isn't, you know, in the midlife crisis can look at this and be like, yeah. And I guess that's I- illustrated in the film where he has the eHarmony profile and he doesn't have anything to put in there. That's like real life. Like, oh, all these people on Facebook that I'm friends with are doing great things. And what am I doing? Yeah. Watching Which, Secret Life of Water Media. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to mention, I appreciate the uh, reference to Stranger Than Fiction, um, as that is a fantastic movie. But like just part of my 
you guys mentioned like innocence and uh, relatability and things like that. One of my biggest um, accolades or compliments I can give to that Walter Mitty movie from 2013 is that it is of such an innocence and good feeling in a time where basically in a post dark night world where it seems like everything has to have a dark sheen to it and, or the Judd Apatow route of comedy where nothing is left on the cutting room floor. It's such a weird balance that I think it, it strived yeah. at. It's because Ben Stiller's from a different era. Like he's from that era in which comedy movies bothered to do character arcs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it matters. Crazy more. concept. Like, and this movie too, the original forties movie is, you know, from that era where, yeah, you know, Walter has a character arc in this movie and it's loose, but it is there. It's not as full out as modern movies do, but modern comedies don't even bother with that now. Mm. They're just like, and they got together in the end. Kiss, kiss, movie over. Thank you, Amy Schumer, for making a movie. Like, you know, like that's kind of like what we're at now. Roll the blooper with reel. Main, with mainstream comedy movies. Yeah, you're Sherlock and you're Watson. Now go. <laughs> like, like, that's it. Like, Will Ferrell, you're Sherlock. Like, that's what movies are now. Like, what career can this actor have? And we'll write jokes about that and not have them have an arc. Like, even with someone like Will Ferrell, what makes something like The Anchorman actually work in comparison to, say, The Anchorman 2 or other Will Ferrell ones is the character has a journey, has an arc, realizes something, whilst also having that improvised comedy riffing jokes crap still there. Like, it's a blending of these things. But, like, this 40s movie of Secret Life World of Midi is there for set pieces. And I think pretty much all of them, except for the Western one, land. And so you kind of forgive it if you aren't like used to that kind of tone and shift of stuff because you enjoy every set piece. Yeah. At least I do. I, I will say this: um, I, when I first saw the original Walter Mitty, actually, no, I became friends with you the year after that. Where we we at some point we talked about Walter Mitty, Ryan and I, and he was telling me that oh, he's a big fan of the original and therefore he doesn't like the new one as much. And every time he described it to me. He, it just sounded like a completely different film, and I know the one scene you ever shown me of it was the one in the the war flashback where he's doing like the teacher impression. Yeah, with I all thought, the wordplay. Yeah, yeah, and I thought like, oh, so I guess this film's just about like a funny foreign guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the first time when I did watch that just on its own, I was like, oh, I, I don't really get this. And when I watched it in the film itself this time. I didn't necessarily laugh, but I actually thought it was really well written. Like, I can yeah. actually see it being a, a class being taught because it all kind of made sense to me. Like, oh, I, I see what he's And you could also see how him doing that in front of his class could make them laugh. Yeah, because I imagine... As the meta context of, like, he did this to make his classmates laugh. Yeah. Like, you could actually see, like, oh, I would laugh at that. It's like, oh, he's really <laughs> nailing this teacher, even though we don't know who this teacher is. Me, yeah, I don't like the the Ben Stiller one as much. I'm a bit more negative on it. I'm very same to to you, Julio, but on the opposite end. Like, I see the Ben Stiller one and I go, oh, that could be better. Or this could be better. Or this little thing in the original one I prefer more. Like, I always go, it's interesting to me more that in this one, the girl of his dreams becomes reality and not a girl in the real world is in his dreams. Like, in, in Ben Stiller one, he, day, he, like, he dreams about a girl in his office that he knows, but in this, it's so interestingly odd to me that a girl that he has perfectly constructed in his brain, in his dreams, then physically comes to him in real life, and it kind of un- it, like it, it, it makes him really anxious and nerved yeah. out. Like he's like, "What?" Yeah, and none of the people in his real life see her until the end. 
Yeah, and there's like all these little hints throughout this movie that I enjoy of, is it a dream? Is it reality? Like lots of symbolism of color, like the color blue is what they use a lot for when it's a dream sequence. Mm. And Mm. he's wearing a blue outfit at the end and his (laughs) office is entirely blue. Like I'm not just reaching out of my ass. Like this is something that the filmmaker filmmaker mentioned. Like there's lots of little touches that I prefer in comparison to Ben Stiller having another midlife crisis movie. I think the problem with The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, for me, the 2013 one, is unfortunately Ben Stiller has made a lot of midlife crisis movies and I had seen them already and I was like another one Ben so I was a little bit worn out on the charm of Ben Stiller having a midlife crisis I'm like does he need counseling (laughs) are you okay Ben is the money not enough is having Jerry Stiller as your dad not enough see you brought a different kind of baggage to the Walter Mitty from Ben Stiller. Yeah. But it's similar to what I brought to this one Uh, see I prefer the 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 romance in the Ben Stiller one, I mean, it's, I can appreciate, actually, I really like the idea that in this one, in the original, yeah, he's dreaming of this girl before he even meets her. But yeah. I, I guess I'm missing, you, you know, once they meet, I wish that there was more to their interaction than just, you know, yeah, the, the plot. It's like, oh, well, now we're going to go retrieve the book and now we're going to go uh, stalk this guy at his house and then we're going to go to the fashion show. But I like that she's actually in the plot. Uh, the connection that grows between Ben Stiller and Kristen Wiig in the in the remake is something that I find a lot more relatable. You know, this guy that's kind of spaced yeah. out and then this girl that inspires him to just kind of get out of his own head. Uh, we're here. It's, I can see that he's basically inspired by Virginia Mayo mainly because she's just attractive, but there's not, like, a, a connection. Oh, yeah. She's you know? real hot. Uh, she, she, no, it's not that she's just uh, hot. She does, push, she does push him into situations. And the, and the thing, the other thing is that the flashbacks, I agree, they they stand out on their own, and that's their kind of their strength, but also their weakness in this, in this version. Because on one end, it means mm-hmm. that I can just pull those musical numbers and I can show them to someone like you did to Bartek, uh, you know, without context, and they still get that. Oh, this is pretty awesome, right? This is, uh, you yeah. know, Danny Kay doing a routine, a song and dance routine, and it's pretty entertaining. Uh, but at the same time, it's almost like I could reshuffle them in the movie, and it wouldn't really change much because, it, except for the one with the the one that none of us like, the one with the cowboy. Uh, I think that all the no, other I ones. Agree. Oh no, the I... one with the yeah, the one with the cards also is pretty well placed. But most of them, they come out and they're pretty arbitrary as far as like how they relate mm. to the story, and that's that's something else that I like in the remake. That really, when he goes into into one of his fantasies, it's very connected to what is going on through his life and you know through his mind at that specific time. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, See, I disagree. I disagree, honestly. Like, for me, I prefer the dreams in in this movie, honestly. One of the things I think that you you touch upon with the Ben Stiller one, and look, I don't don't think that we all want to just keep going, like, it's a race between which one's the better movie. They're both excellent movies in their own regard. One, just for each of us, there's one that we prefer. For me, I prefer the dreams in this one because um, it matters more to me that he is a daydreamer and he has daydreams and they are more set pieces. A lot of the time they actually do go out of their way to make sure that they connect. And I actually think it'd actually be hard to reshuffle some of them because he's usually doing a physical activity or something along is happening. Well, but Ben Stiller's one, it has the uh, beauty of having very flourishment in direction of the dreams slowly merging with reality. Well, this one, it goes out of its way 
with interesting direction as well, like the blue spotlight, to show you the artifice of of all of this and the tapakata tapakata, which they never explain, and nor do you need it to be because it's funny. <laughs> But for me, I think the dreams actually, uh, for me, stick with me more. What I found interesting in your other Walter Mitty episode was you guys talked about how, uh, at least when you first watched it, or at least one of you did, was you found that you weren't interested in the dreams as much, but more interested in his real life before even he goes on the adventure. Well, right. for me, I think it's the opposite way around here, where you're more interested in his daydreams than his real life until the story kicks in. And I think that makes it more interesting. For me, also... I like the fact that his daydreams relate to his career. While in Ben Stiller's one, you guys didn't even mention the Benjamin Button dream out of nowhere. Like a lot of them are like <laughs> pop culture or this or this and this. And he and they do the thing of, oh, the people in his real life are in his dreams and he's fighting them. Well, in this one, he's fully immersed in his own imagination of the pulp fiction he's making. And I find that one a little bit more interesting. I like the fact that all of his dreams are on sets. Like, there's just this blank, like, blue background, which I find great because when I have daydreams, all of those kind of things just kind of fade and you're kind of imagining what you're physically doing in the scene. So I think the dreams for me in this particular movie work better than in the Ben Stiller one. But unfortunately, they, like, the last one in particular gets in the way, unfortunately. But for me, I find that the integration of the dreams work better for his character and for the tone of the movie. Well, in the Ben Stiller one, I was I never really look forward to his dreams. I'm always like, okay, that was all right. Him and Adam Scott fought. But it never <laughs> makes me go, yes, that scene, I want to watch it on its own because it was so good. Well, this one, it has that for me as well. Like, that's just me. Like, I don't want to just say the Ben Stiller one's shit. Like, I'm saying it's a really well done, really well made, crafted movie. Both of them are. But just for me... Some of the mechanics of this work really well. Like, I like the the direction with the blue and the colors. And, like, at the end, everyone's wearing blue. And it's like, is it real? Everything's shuffling so fast. When he even first meets Virginia Mayo on the train, the train's naturally making the tapakata, tapakata, tapakata noise because that's what the train does. <laughs> and it makes you go, to this day, you know, nearly, you know, how many, how many decades later, people still argue how much of it's real and how much of it isn't. And the film doesn't really want you to linger too much on that because it's not trying to be Inception. But it does have the effort of making you wonder, oh, that's a bit convenient. That's a bit weird. That's a bit dreamlike. I don't know if you know, like, there's this documentary about uh, Kubrick's The Shining. 90 minutes of people discussing all the conspiracy theories and hidden symbolism that's in The Shining. And it was too much for me because it was just an overload of information. Uh, but but the thing is, like, everything they said, I mean, if you went down the rabbit hole, it made sense, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, you just kind of had to make the decision of, do I believe that Kubrick was that obsessed with, with the symbology and with all the hidden meanings, you know, because they, they're reading stuff about Native American extermination <laughs> and uh, the the fake moon landing and all that stuff in The Shining, which, you know. <laughs> uh, well, the so, kid does wear a jumper with the Apollo 11 on it. So uh, <laughs> moon landing was filmed by Kubrick. The old joke, he, he wanted so much realism that he sent them to the moon. <laughs> There's a Halloween documentary, too, where someone poses to um, John Carpenter their theory of <laughs> it being a tale of male domination due to the phallic symbol of the knife. And he just, like, deadpans and it's like, 
Some people have too much time on their hands. <laughs> yeah. so, well, but I would like to see the 90-minute documentary that's about the original Walter Mitty and all the different clues and symbols that might push you one way or another about whether it's a dream or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- yeah. Because I really do see the potential, and I felt it while we were watching it, of, wow, just tilt this like a little bit more to the right or to the left and it could be like that episode of star trek the next generation where Riker doesn't know what's real and what isn't you know they- i like that you went i like how that you went with star trek the next generation i'm like good on you that's it i thought you're gonna go total recall but like you know that too no 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 <laughs> like, i i he I, sweats better shoot him <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is that is terrifying here of course it's played for laughs i don't think yeah, that- there's, there's laughs ensuing but it does at least give you the wiggle room to have some extra thought about it afterwards and it's like from a movie from the 40s that's a comedy you don't get that at all really you know it doesn't like leave you to go and think about it for yourself after it's done like this one like inception yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah i don't think yeah. that there were many people back then though that they were like i think they went to see the danny k show and they walked away super happy uh just having seen the danny k show and then somebody came up to them and were like well, but did you notice that maybe it's all in his head and they just ruined the movie for them? Like, they were not ready for that. There is that YouTube channel Film Theory. They could do a whole episode on this. There yeah, yeah. Now that's the film theory. Like, yeah. Uh, no, this movie's, you know, the 40s one, at least what I like about the Ben Still one is it isn't just a direct beat for beat copy of this one like they're both different from one another they're both unique and different like they could have been like could you imagine the remake of secret life of walter midi in which they try to get someone to do a danny k kind of impression like neil patrick harris you can sing and dance up you come (laughs) and he like la la land (laughs) <laughs> La La Land. I said sing and dance. Come on. Um, <laughs> get Ryan Gosling to just stare Take at the that, camera. La La Land. I think um, what we're getting at here, all four of us, is uh, one of the rarest compliments you can give to uh, a, a remake and an original and that they're both good. <laughs> in their own way. They have their own flavor. In their own in distinct their, way. Yeah. yeah. Which is nice. Uh, in the age of remakes, this could have gone down really badly. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty could be like, Owen Wilson <laughs> is Mitty. <laughs> well, sorry, I'm having a daydream. <laughs> they got in on the ground level, too, before the remake reboot franchise craze really took off. It was already in full effect, but Stiller got in before the death rattle. <laughs> <laughs> I I am really I'm really interested, especially now, having seen two versions of this story. I'm really interested in reading the original story and seeing how because it sounds like it's also different from this version and the stiller version. And I'm curious to see one, what is it that the author found so infuriating about the adaptation? I want to see what his version of Walter Mitty is. Mm-hmm. You know, because if it's not the daydreamer that that Danny Kay is. And I I remember when we were reading reviews and quotes for the Ben Stiller one, they were also saying that it had nothing to do with the original story or the Danny Kay version. So what is it? You know, what what is this Walter Media? And I think somebody told us, uh somebody might have like sent us an email or maybe it was Hans sending me a yeah, message that, that said that the original is just it's almost like just the opening of this movie and that's it. There's no plot other than him going about his life and daydreaming, but there's never an actual story. Plot, yeah. yeah, it's just him doing errands and his day is so boring that he daydreams of cool stuff. So if that's well written, that's cool. I love it. But if it's not, then of course it's going to be a drag because I, I like me some story. Yeah. So you think that the original story is not going to be actor showing off his talents? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Ben Stiller can skate. Come on. Uh, <laughs> That's what that one was showing off. Hey, Ben Stiller can tie rocks to his hands. Aren't you impressed? Dude, you that looked yes. awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the answer is a resounding yes. I can't wait for the, uh, the like, the, the where they go full circle. They come back to, like, now let's do an art house movie of this. Let's get Darren Aronofsky... And he's going to make it a Christ allegory movie. Uh, and then he's going to say in interviews, yeah, it's the Bible. It's, it's going to be that weird cut of, um, uh, what's that film that you watched the weird cut of? Uh, Band Slam. Yeah, we watched on our show the film Band Slam, uh, the greatest film ever made. And I watched <laughs> a fan. I accidentally got a, a copy of a fan edit of the movie in which they made it more like a David Lynch style film. Where it was like all this weird, weird editing choices. And I'm like, wow, this movie's really arty. And Bartek's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, what? Then you have to watch the real I'd version. I had to watch the real version to make sure I gave justice to Band Slam, a movie where a character's name is Sam, but with the number five in it. So that we had to call them Survivum. And everyone in the film <laughs> thought that was really deep. Yeah. <laughs> um, did we have a favorite set piece? Each one of us, like, there's so many, but was there one that stood out in particular? For I really like the else? the gambling scene. Damn it, you took it from uh. me. I was gonna say to me, where they're playing cards, it hits all the all the things that make it that I wanted the other ones to hit. Except maybe song and dance. There's no song and dance in that one. Well, and also the pan out when it's just a shot of his hands and you see it's actually Danny Kaye doing that shit with the cards. I was yeah, like, oh, that wow, looks, that looks pretty cool. But I like, I laugh really hard at him putting the deed. As part of the bet, yeah, uh, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like how like it relates directly to the plot because you know he goes from being shitty, really shitty at cards to being really good at cards and the and playing against uh, the main nemesis in his in his personal life. Yeah, and then he has the 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 scene with uh with the girl at the end with Virginia Mayo where it it has like a full like little story there. You know, yeah. I guess most of them have, uh, you know, where he wins her, but then he doesn't take her. And he has that line, uh, I think you, Ryan, quoted it in Contreras Corner, where he's saying something about how, like, pluck a star from the sky and bring her to the filthy betting table, table and it, better it, yeah yeah so good oh, that, that's one. really good yeah this shakespearean quote it was such a i like the i like that he, in his dream world the outside of wherever it is in the south in america just is bubbles just everything's bubbles and balls and like this weird yeah that bubble surreal environment answer. like i love that i love how weird it is so your answer is that too like yes, when they're talking that sequence but specifically the outdoor one where they had all the bubbles is like uh, very weird my i'm a personal fan of the world war ii fighter pilot i like that the tapakata tapakata noise is very prominent <laughs> in that when they're spinning around and i like that he puts stickers of schwa stickers on his thing for each time he's killed one and there's yeah, like even a like debate. It's like, isn't it 73? Ah, 71, actually. There's two unconfirmed, and I'm not going to take credit for something that isn't confirmed. And you're like, what is... And he did a good British accent, too. You're like, yeah, it's not yeah. too hammy. You're like, hey, I can actually believe in being in a real movie like this. And then he did a Czech accent. Uh, then he did a Czech accent. I liked his song and dance and that one in particular. Yet again, I like the Anatoly of Paris one, but it feels like a little late in the movie. It's only got really two songs. Mm-hmm. Just those two. Yeah. Which is interesting. You're expecting like this to be more of a musical than it is, but... It doesn't need to be, I guess. No, it it's, it balances it well. Yeah, they have the yeah. format to to put more musical numbers if they'd wanted to, but I guess they once again they showed restraint. They can be a Walter Mitty stage music. See, <laughs> with his dreams, for me, like I said, I think they tie in more and also to comedy. Like I loved when he was a heart surgeon and he's using everything in the shopping list. 
to like I shove think... into the sky and then sew them up with needles and it's like so like I think that was the first time I so laughed. Serious. Yeah. yeah, I think that was the first time I laughed because before I was like, oh man, he's he's really playing it up how clumsy he is and how absent-minded he is. And then we come to that that sequence and when I realized that what he was using was the items from the shopping list, mm-hmm. that was that was really clever and that, that made me laugh. And then I was like, all right, I'll give you a chance, Danny K. You bought yourself 10 more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're out of here, all right? We're going to replace you. We're, We're going to replace you with someone else. We're going to bring Ben Stiller here to lend some gravity to the proceedings. That one had two musical numbers too, see? Mm, oh, but that is that is one of my favorite parts of the remake, the, the ground control to Major Tom moment. Kristen Wiig yeah. singing it, yeah. Yeah, that it's is... Fun. It's, it's a fun. It's a fun little sequence. This movie has the, the original one... You know, it has other characters like Walter Mitty is what it's one of those movies where Walter Mitty is the front and center character, and you like him or relate to him or understand him the most. When the Ben Stiller one, it's mainly just him, and you have some other characters appear for like two, three minutes in the movie, and you're like, oh, I like them, but they're gone now. Well, this they're more in the movie, but they don't for me infiltrate the the proceedings. Like none of them try to outshine Danny Kay and being hilarious, but oh, some of they- them have their. <laughs> They, they couldn't do even have try. funny moments. I think the mum does a really good job of delivering some little comedy moments and her voice, she's just like got this perfect voice to be his mother. You know, it's like this really domineering her voice. reaction, like instant reaction to everything. Like, no, Walter, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I loved her. I, <laughs> Not I, my mum. And I love the boss. I, I genuinely I, loved the boss. I, I do like the boss. Yeah, Mr. Pierce. Yeah, I think that he is... Mitty! He's, <laughs> he's really... I mean, he plays a part well, but also he has a little more of the subtle humor, you know, when you're... Mm. He's constantly appropriating uh, Walter's ideas and passing them on his own, and it, but it's not... Mm. You know, the movie kind of points it out early on, and then it just keeps happening. Yeah, I, I like him, probably. What do you think about Virginia Mayo? I don't think that she gets much to do. That's the mm-hmm. thing. I, I mean, she is obviously she's gorgeous, and that makes that works for the story because she needs to make that that impression on him. But then after that, she's kind of, you know, she's playing the straight man, so she doesn't really get to shine yeah. in the way that Danny Kay does, or even like the the bad guys do. But but that's also kind of reflective of of the time because I think that back then it wasn't so much that the female characters would get to be funny, or I, I think actually she has the fact that she has as big a part of the. In the story, you know, she actually... That's what I find interesting is in comparison to the the remake, you know, I personally feel like uh, Virginia Mayo has a lot more meat to sink her teeth into. She gets to be a part of the hijinks. She gets to be on the adventure. Um, She was a serious actress, more dramatic, like with stuff with Mutiny on the Bounty. So it's nice to see a serious actress coming into what would be, like, if you think about it, you could rewrite this movie into one of those serious movies and she would have been the actress in that movie. Mm -hmm. And she's in this. And that's humorous to me. Well, like uh, uh, Kristen Wiig, she's just kind of like, we know her to be the funny lady. I've seen her do more dramatic stuff like uh, Skeleton Twins and whatnot. I know she has a lot of range. But in that, for me personally, I feel like they don't utilize her as much for me well in this it's like Virginia Mayo she gets to at least be a part of the story and the hijinks and kind of drive him through the plots and actually be there and have banter and interact with him throughout the whole entire movie and like I said I'm, I'm a sucker for the fact that his dream girl comes to life and he's just like what? I find that a lot more fascinating and also the fact that it's Virginia Mayo who's like a serious actress coming in to do this. It won't be the last time she does something like this in her career. She did another one with Bob Hope that's the princess and the pirate in which she's just basically riffing on her mutiny on the bounty again. 
and like fully like that's a pirate movie and princess and she's just basically doing her performance from that but in a comedy movie i know that for me there was a point of intrigue with uh, virginia mayo where early on when she was being introduced and I guess, introducing this other world to Walter Mitty of this, like, spy plot going on. When she, you know, vanished into the phone booth and when uh, when she told Walter to trust the, the, the grandfather clock with her, yeah. there was a point where I was thinking, like, oh, is she, like, hiding something from Walter? Like, is she, like, actually kind of manipulating his, his mind? Obviously nothing really came of that, but there, I was at least interested to see where she was going when I was watching the film. Yeah, I think that uh, actually the, the with Kristen Wiig, it plays the opposite way because, like you said, this was... Uh, uh, Virginia Mayo was a serious actress that now is playing in a comedy, and with Kristen Wiig, we know her from just the wackier roles, uh, more of a comedy actress, and she's pretty subdued than Walter Mitty. I think that what really makes that special is that even though she's not so much in the plot, the chemistry she has with Ben Stiller is really good. So even though she doesn't spend that much time with him, every time that that she reappears, their connection is there. And it, it, it you know, I buy it. I buy that he would be inspired by her and that he would want to do things for her. Here, like I said before, it's more physical. And I also buy it because, you know, She's gorgeous, yeah, you, and, and, and and he's getting pushed into situations, and now people want to kill him, and he's like, "Oh right. my god, I can't not kind of go through with this. I've got the book now. Oh my god, like, mm-hmm. you know, all this, all this when crazy." He's hijinks. Drinking the tea and like shaking. Yeah, I like when he knew he put all the flowers in the lemonade, and the mother's like, "Walter." Yeah, that's one of the history. <laughs> no, Walter. Like he's just such a fool. I like that whole sequence where, outside of the set pieces, one of the sequences I really enjoy is the bit where she's in his house and he's having to go up and down the stairs and whistle and and help her. Oh, they and, can't and, fall asleep. And they can't fall asleep and like they keep coming out and the other family, like the, the, the wife-to-be and the mother-in-law are really sceptical as it goes along. <laughs> like they don't want to be a part of this at all, but I love it. It's just so good. Like even in the wedding, like when, when he already said, I do, and then it cut to her face, the wife-to-be, she was like not into it. It was like, oh, well. Yeah. That was one of the big questions that I wanted to bring up in Contrarian's Corner, which is how did this relationship come to be? And I think at one point they mentioned that maybe they knew each other from high school or from school. It's a, so- yeah. it's a social relationship as well. With for- It's for the mums. Yeah, I thought They're the like, ah, oh, we it. paired them together. He earns money. And that, like, he earns a good amount of money. Like, from the universe, we understand he is doing pretty well for himself. He's a pretty high up level guy. He does have the ideas. He has to be kept around, as we said. So I think it's just a social thing of, oh, them and them together, even if they don't want it. Basically arranged marriage. Yeah, basically an arranged marriage. I love the little touch of... Oh, Walter, you stink. What is that? The cologne you got me for Christmas. She's like, oh, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> All right. So what what would you guys rate this one? Like out of, uh, well, I don't know. How do you guys rate it. things? That was what I was, I was going to segue into that. Non-numerically. Uh, but like I don't know. We uh, on, just kind on the of give of... our yay or nay on recommendations. Yeah. Uh, Bartek, you can make up a rating if you want. <laughs> um. I enjoyed it. I think I think I might have enjoyed the Ben Still one more, but I saw that seven years ago, so it's really not fresh in my mind. Um, yeah, I think this film was perfectly serviceable, and I think it has a lot of good elements to it. It's definitely a thumbs-up recommendation, number bigger than five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, how about you, Ryan? Well, do both. I mean, do uh, the this one and the Ben Stiller one. Like, oh, For me, Ben Stiller's four out of ten. 
<laughs> Damn. <laughs> thought, about, thought about it a lot. Ryan's actually been very subdued this episode. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm being really polite because I listened to your episode a while back and I gave it a rewatch being like, oh, they really liked it. And maybe what they said is really going to rub off on me. I really want to walk into a positive. And for me, it's one of those movies that unfortunately does not get more enjoyable when I rewatch it. Like I saw it in the cinema and I walked out being like, yeah, that was really good. Like it's pretty decent. Like it's but, not nothing new for Ben. I mean, but, I, uh, I get it. I mean, you said that this one was almost like a 10 out of 10 earlier and I get it's yep. your baby and then they mess with your baby. So I can understand why. Yeah, I mean, I don't even hold this. This isn't one of those movies for me that I, I hold too highly or, re- or watch regularly enough to be like yeah but in this era of movies it is a really high watermark for what it is uh i prefer the movie he did after the pale face with bob hope the director uh, i would give this movie like an eight eight and a half out of ten i think it just loses some points because the third act kind of drags its feet the villains don't really have as much characterization as they could have like i feel like you could have done a little bit more with the villains themselves to give them a bit more character i mean boris karloff had some i'll give him that like you know but a part of it is <laughs> is because it's boris karloff exactly he's yeah. bringing that boris karloff persona alex what's your rating for this one i don't remember what your rating was for walter Mitty. i think i probably high. gave the ben stiller one an a i'd give this one a b plus yeah, Alex does letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. I'm on the letterbox scale, so I do. I do five stars from zero to five stars. I'm gonna give this one a three out of five stars, with the potential of it going up, maybe half a star on rewatch mm. once I've like left the baggage behind. Yeah, and I know yeah. exactly. I know exactly that. what I'm getting into. It's good stuff. Then I can just stop worrying about where the plot is going and how different it is from the remake, and just kind of appreciate it for what it is you know and, and just that. the 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 danny k performance now that i know where it's going i can enjoy it more and i can enjoy the fantasies and all that stuff but at the very least it's all at three stars like i said i laughed a lot yeah there's a lot of like really really good moments that are just their own not mm-hmm. even that oh they're good because they did them better than the in the ben stiller movie it's just they did the, they're good because they're good yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of filmmaking techniques in both of them that really benefit from rewatches, and that's kind of the joy of both of these movies. Like we said, they're both interesting tellings of the story, and the filmmaking for both of them is rewarding on multiple viewings. Even though I don't like the Ben Stiller one on multiple viewings, it's more the what the story is, but the filmmaking for both of them, like, you know, if you rewatch this 1940s one, you may notice some other little things. Like when I was watching it, I noticed that there's a bit where she's standing outside of his office and behind her are all of these magazines and all of the women on the magazines look exactly like her. They all yeah. look exactly like Virginia Mayo. And That's it's like, awesome. oh, and he walks past that every day. So you can understand where he constructed her from in his brain. So it's like little tricks like that. And the Ben Still one has all these things too. Good mise-en-scene. Yeah, good mise-en-scene for both of them, which, you know, wow, you know, that's unique. I mean, you know, Venom doesn't have that. <laughs> this is true. Well, we, we haven't seen Venom. We don't know that. Um, all right. So this is where we do plugs. Yeah. I was going to say winding it down. Uh, for our plugs, uh, as always, the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Uh, opening is Last Stand, closing is Summer 99. Thefestiveyears.com for all your Festive Years needs. Our logo by the talented Hans Rothgieser. He does logos, he does comics. He has two podcasts one in Spanish called Nacion Combi. One in English called Living in Peru. Uh, Nacion Combi, you can find everywhere. Living in Peru, you can find on iVox. You can hit him up on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, you can also email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. Just email him. And since he seems to be the only person 
we know that has read the original Walter Mitty. Yes. Hopefully we're remembering that, right? The source of truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just hit him up and ask him, what's up? And then before we do our plugs, I guess, we'll let Ryan and Bartek uh, plug whatever they want to plug. Uh, I want to plug my friend Ryan's podcast, Spit and Polish Presents. <laughs> it, it's very good. You can find it on Podbean. You can look up Spit go. and Polish Presents. Make sure you put Presents because you might find shoe polishing videos, especially on YouTube. We're on all we're on all the platforms, Bartek, on all of them except for SoundCloud because we don't deal with that dirty system. Um, no, there's you know um, obviously our show. You can check us out. We 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 covered a few interesting movies at recent. As of this recording, we just had an episode on Savages with everyone's favorite boy, John Travolta. And I mean, uh, we all love him. If I, I may cut in, him. also, uh, you guys were speaking of Blake Lively and questioning her credentials. Uh, yeah, can you can you refresh the credentials for me? Yes, she hosted Saturday Night Live in December of 2009. I would highly recommend you guys consult Hulu and watch that entire episode. As well, she it... she hosted a thing, okay? <laughs> yes, and makes she's her, a... makes her, makes an A lister now. Yeah, well, yeah. well and that and, and her part on Green Lantern. Well, not that, but on oh. that episode of SNL, she was part of the greatest sketch in SNL history and played a pivotal role in it. So uh, I, I don't will know. Always, I don't know I, what sketch is it. You got to clarify because I've already seen the Matt Foley one with Chris Farley, and that's probably some of the best. So, it's just called know. Potato Chip, and it, <laughs> it's iconic. And she will okay, always. So I take back my Blake Lively criticism from watching her <laughs> act in movies and TV. And Thank now you. I accomplished. Thank you. Apology accepted. Uh, I did also want to call out from the Savages episode. Um, really like the idea of a database that you were mentioning of uh, yes. Ryan about um, director's cuts, producer's cuts, all those different. That are worth watching. Yeah, exactly. Because coming from the slasher horror fandom that I do that's ob- always, oh, you haven't seen this cut of it? You haven't seen that cut? It's like, which one's really fucking worth watching? The most prevalent is Halloween 6, the one with Paul Rudd that everyone is always I sworn. I love Paul. Yeah, uh, one, is, one cut is so vastly <laughs> superior to the other. So I think we do need to construct a database or commission someone to do it at least. Well, you would take yeah. just uh, Blade Runner and Brazil would probably take up just most of the... Blade Runner was the one they just kept repeatedly <laughs> <Okay>. mentioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're like, well, which copy of Blade Runner is it, huh? Like, we don't know. Like, it's, yeah, it's that thing with, with, with both of our shows having to cover movies. You have to go, which cut of the movie are we going to watch to really give it a fair shake of criticism? Because, you know, you could do a whole episode about savages like we did and then someone will come over and be like you didn't even know there was a director's cut it's 10 minutes longer and 10 minutes better like you know and then the eggs are on your face and you're like do we have to watch that and give it a fair shake and then you know you just have to bite the bullet and go like okay well and there's no place online that i could find they're just usually sites that tell you what the differences are and i'm like yeah but Mm -hmm. that doesn't tell me if it's good yeah like do does 10 more minutes of benicio hanging with his family in savages really benefit (laughs) me watching it i mean he tries to rape his wife apparently yeah he's the best character in the movie sure i'd like to see more of him but like i don't know man i don't know if i want to sit down for but yeah so help us internet you're all listening to us make it happen make it a director's cut database (laughs) uh i don't have much in the way of plugs other than i watched uh, burn after reading for the first time last night and the coen brothers are fantastic filmmakers so if you see them on the street shake their hands and say (laughs) well done good job boys yeah You, you did it again john malkovich is fucking awesome in that movie uh 
I I was I literally I just pulled up my letterbox to see what movies I've watched recently, uh, to see if like if there was anything worth recommending because we're like being so rapid fire with the with the episodes that we're recording right now because I'm about to take a, a sabbatical prison and yeah no I mean because I watch Savages like I said but I wouldn't recommend it I wouldn't no. plug it I would plug your episode about yeah. it without even having listened to it yet um, mm-hmm. and then I watched uh, it chapter two which was all right uh, I think that. If you like the first one, you definitely want to watch the second one. Uh, Is it worth three hours of your time? If you're already invested because you watched chapter one, then... Julio, yeah. Julio, Julio, you can say no. They're not going to pull the trigger. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can hear you struggling and you want to say no, but you can feel the clown's hand on your shoulder going, you got to give it a five out of five, Georgie. No, I give it three and pop, a half pop. out of five. Uh, and that's, you know, it has a lot of problems, but I had a blast just because... One, I was invested from the first one, and two, I really like the cast. So and, and I was just blackout drunk, is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> it was wings and beer, and uh, by the second hour, I didn't know who was who. I he had a li- he had a little he had a little nap. Woke up, the movie was still on. You know, it's one of those ones. Yeah. Woke up, hey, it's just Chastain. All right, <laughs> <laughs> all right. She grew up fast. <laughs> I think we're gonna go ahead and take this baby home. Uh, Ryan, Bartek, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this with us. This is a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad that we were able to. And you guys are, are great because you were able to schedule it at such short notice. Uh, we're heroes. I took, yeah, well, I took the day off work. I'm a hero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Uh, that was Walter Mitty. That's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And we will catch you next time. That's some of the 90s.